Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... This week on Plenary Session, I've got so much good stuff in store for you. I've got Adam Seafew and Scott Stern, and they're joining me to talk about their new podcast, about their book, Symptom Diagnosis. It's a clinical reasoning podcast. You're not going to want to miss this discussion. Next, I got Vlad Kogan. Vlad Kogan's back to talk education. The election has come, a vaccine is on the horizon, and people have forgotten about school-age children going to school. Well, we haven't forgotten here on Plenary Session. We're going to revisit that issue. But to be perfectly honest, we are both a bit depressed about We see the possibility that this nation overcome its irrationality and fear is unlikely to happen before the new administration. That's a damn shame. And finally, I've got Kerry Cruz Bueno. Kerry Cruz Bueno is an economist who did a fantastic paper on the impact of even short-term online learning on kids' educational outcomes. You're not going to want to miss this discussion. It is terrific. And first, I have a bit of a monologue. You're going to have to suffer through. So stay tuned. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. First up, suggestions. I've gotten a lot of suggestions over over time about the duration of this podcast, about timestamps, all these things, transcripts. Look, I'm with you. I'd like to offer all those services. Unfortunately, we run this on a shoestring budget. It's just the Patreon backers, and that's about it. So, what do you want me to do? We're, we're not going to be able to put out a, a, a proper show that's rivaling people who do it for their full-time job. It's not going to happen. You take it or leave it. That's that's the bottom line. You take it or leave it. All right. <laughs> On that positive note, let me go to the topics I want to discuss. All right. First up, abstinence-only Thanksgiving. I got a new article out there, and it's in MedPage today. It's called Abstinence-Only Thanksgiving. That's not public health. Listen, we all know what happened. Last week, there was some article, some poll. I don't know how well it was done. It's probably... A total piece of garbage poll. Look, these polls, they're garbage. They couldn't predict anything when it comes to the election. They can't predict anything when it comes to this. People, when queried, first of all, if somebody calls my phone and I don't know the number, I'm not answering the phone call. Who are you kidding? You think I got time to answer phone calls from people I don't know? I do not have that time. Second, if they start asking me questions, I'm going to hang up on them. I don't know who these people are. I don't owe them anything. I don't got time for this. Third, if they really do find me, capture me, and pin me and ask me questions about things that are a bit uh, we don't like to talk about, um, I'm not going to answer them honestly, to be honest with you. And so, not surprisingly, there are people who are polled and they all say they're going to vote for Biden, and many people who are going to vote for Trump don't want to say they're going to vote for him. Um, that's, of course, the case. Of course, they, they want to avoid any stigma that would come from saying that. Um, people who want to get together with their family for Thanksgiving are not going to fess up to that, I think, if queried. Despite that limitation, there was a poll that found 
38% of Americans were going to gather in 10 or more people indoors. Only, I think, 30% were going to wear masks during the meal. And in fact, let's be honest, that's unlikely to occur. Um, it's sobering poll. It's a wake-up call. What it tells you is that people are telling you, they're telling you they cannot take it anymore. They can't take social isolation. They're going to get together for Thanksgiving. They've had enough. And people say, well, you know, this could spread the risk of the virus and people will die and it doesn't just affect you, it affects others. Of course, they know all that. You know how they know all that? Because you have to be in a coma not to know all that. It's been nothing but the television for the last eight to nine months about the dangers of COVID and how it spread. Most people are aware, I think. Even in those recalcitrant straits, they are finally aware because their counts are going through the roof. And despite all that, ICUs at capacity, counts going through the roof, stories and stories of heartache and what it's like to deal with the virus, people are saying, we still are going to do this. That's what they're saying. In a poll, which probably underestimates how many people are actually going to do it. I read that and I thought to myself, oh boy, I don't want to look on Twitter. But then I looked. God, I shouldn't, shouldn't have looked. It's the usual suspects. The usual people come out of the woodwork, all caps. Do not do this. Do not do this. This is dumb. You're killing people. You want to have Thanksgiving? You better have a funeral for your loved one on Christmas, you know, this kind of stuff. The same emotions were pulled at, fear, shame, the same sorts of classic tropes, all caps. It's not helping anybody, man. It's just not helping anybody. It might make you feel good. And of course, because the medium of social media rewards extreme and powerful messages, it gets massive retweets. And so you feel that the jolt, that, that, that dopamine addiction, that encourages you to go further and say even more ultimately not helpful and, and foolish things. And when I saw people who are quote unquote public health experts, but let's be honest, they didn't really do much in public health and they often have a prerequisite to engaging in the field, but they do have some role in the healthcare ecosystem and they like Twitter and, and these people have become self-anointed and anointed by the crowd experts. Um, and, and they said the usual things and, and, I, and I looked at it and I thought, this is, this is not helpful. And so I took some time, I stepped back, and I wrote this thing about Thanksgiving and how this abstinence-only crusade is going to kill us. It's going to kill us because all these messages are not addressing the elephant in the room, which is that people are saying they're going to do this. So let's just take them seriously that they are not going to back down. And as long as you're not going to declare martial law and shut down the city, which, by the way, we're not going to do that in the U.S., this isn't China. We can't do those things. Um, you have to meet them where they are. They want to do this. So what can they do to minimize the risk? Should they self-quarantine for 14 days before? Should they get a test, then quarantine, then drive to their loved one's house? Should everyone going into that all participate in that process? Should they have a quarantine period on the back end of it? Should they actually try to eat outside, set up a table outside, set up variety of tables? Should cities actually take some initiative and close blocks and set out picnic tables and heat lamps and other ways to kind of get people in a different way. Should they offer free beer if you go outside and have your have your Thanksgiving dinner? I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think outside the box. Paul Sachs does know. He's an ID doctor, of course, at the at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and he has a blog post out, things that people can do to mitigate the risk, not eliminate the risk. And so I wrote an article, and the gist of the article is that public health ultimately has to account for where people are. It is not a theoretical science. It's a real hands-in-the-dirt science. It's a real pragmatic science. And what it means is, in this situation, I suspect, 
strongly that it will be unproductive to further engage in the types of messaging that you have done nothing but engage in for eight months and instead to shift to a different type of messaging and perhaps mitigating the tsunami of cases that's going to come in through other strategies, assuming that people will in fact meet and there's nothing you can do to stop that. That's what my article was. It was a call for pragmatism, for some common f***ing sense. That was a call for common sense. That's all it was. And... You know, I got mostly a positive react reaction because I think a lot of people out there still have not lost their lost their sense. And then, as I was working on that, there's another article that dropped. It was the Danish Mask Study, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and of course, it it was powered to find a 50% reduction in the acquisition of SARS-CoV-2, assuming a 2% population prevalence, it and assuming 20% uh, dropout. Um, it, uh, you know, had 90 plus percent adherence by the metric of adherence that they decided to use. Um, although to be honest, you know, this adherence question is totally nonsense. The, the thing that you're testing is the public health intervention to advise people to wear masks and provide masks, which is what this study did, versus not to advise them not to wear masks. Does that mean everyone in the control arm couldn't have worn a mask? Maybe somebody did wear a mask. That doesn't change the test. That doesn't change the randomized trial. And if everyone in the, in the, in the group assigned to wear the mask didn't comply, that doesn't change the test either. This is a test of the strategy. Is this a wise thing to do from a policy point of view? It is a pragmatic study. It's actually much more wise than the theoretical study where you force people to do it in one arm and you didn't do it in the other arm. That is the kind of study that people who are disconnected from clinical medicine and public health want. That's, that's a theoretical study in a world we don't live in. We want studies that tell us about the world we do live in, which is what can Governor Newsom say on TV that will improve masking or and, and will that therefore decrease cases? That's what we're testing. We're testing pragmatic policy choices. That's what we have to do. Anyway, that's just another side note. Anyway, so this mask study came out, and what does it find? It was adequately powered to look for a 50% reduction in cases. Some people say, oh, I didn't think it would be that much. Okay, come on, people, get out of here. I mean, this is a reasonable thing to look for. It was a reasonable point estimate. Uh, I, of course, didn't think it would be that much, but people who were proponents of it they seemed like they thought it would be that much magnitude of benefit. In fact, I wish we had surveyed them. We could have documented what they thought the individual risk reduction would be. Anyway, it, 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 it is a negative study. And actually, the actual incidence was almost identical in both arms, 1.8%, 2.1%, and actually pretty close to 2%. So they actually hit the nail on the head, which is really actually quite commendable. One of the things about power is if I did a randomized control trial powered for incidence of breast cancer in 40-year-old women, yeah, I know what the incidence of breast cancer in 40-year-old women is. If I do a randomized control trial powered for the acquisition of SARS-CoV-2 in Denmark between spring and summer of 2020, and I guess it's going to be 2%, do I actually know what it's going to be 2%? No, I don't know it's going to be 2%. It could be 2%, it could be 22%, okay? It's a fat-tailed probability event. There's a non-negligible probability it's going to be far higher than what you might expect. In fact, you have no, you have no clue what it will be. So the fact they powered it for 2%, it could have been way higher and they got a few thousand people, 4,000 plus, to complete the study. And they used antibody screening on the back end. I mean, this is a good, this is a really good study, people. They so easily could have gotten hit a little bit harder. What does the study show? The study shows, I think, rather conclusively that in a setting environment where there's about a 2% prevalence over the course of a few months, that you wearing the mask is not going to help you. That's, 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 I think, what it shows. It's not going to reduce it by 50% or more. Is it going to reduce it by 5%? For you, maybe, but, you know, is that worth the inconvenience and headache and having to remember the mask? I don't know. That's up to individuals. It's an individual study. It's not a cluster study. It does not show 
this mantra, my mask protects you, it doesn't protect me. It's a new mantra to me prior to this year. I, I had not heard too many people bandy that about. This study does not address that. That would require cluster randomization, which Paul Glazio tells me is being done. It's actually being done in the Guinea. So we may actually learn the answer to that. There are other cluster randomized control trials of masking to, to, to prevent the spread to others in the flu setting, um, which you can review. But I think there are a number of reasons to suspect that, you know, they may not directly apply to this particular situation. I think in this article, I argue that the real takeaway lesson is that, you know, randomized trials are feasible. They should be done. We should do a lot more of them. Um, I also argue that I was reading some people tweeting about it and they're tweeting all sorts of hate about this. The same people who one week ago were tweeting that study that said, what, what is the average mask usage in your state X axis? And do you know somebody who has COVID Y axis? And there's like a, there's like a downward slope there. So states where the average mask usage is lower, people know more people with COVID. That is total garbage <laughs> ecological association that proves nothing of value. And yet, the same quote-unquote expert who would tweet that is, uh, is, is busting the chops of the, uh, the Danish mask study people because they didn't accrue 60K people and power it for a, for, a, for, a, for a 5% reduction. I mean, come on. Let's have some, actually, no, power it for a, going to be higher, so the square power. Okay, I'll come back to that. Come back to that math. We're going to get it. Okay. Um, it's not the point. The point is that, you know, it, it was a good study. It was, it, it, in fact, probably the single highest quality study on the mask question to date in the SARS-CoV-2 era. Um, Christine Lane deserves um, props for publishing it. The annals editors deserve props for talking about it. Some of the editorialists, I don't know where they're coming from, but that's their prerogative. So I encourage you to read these two articles. I think I've tried my best to walk the the line of being 100% accurate about what it did and did not show, and also to reveal some of the absurdities. Um, and in response to my to my efforts, the thanks I got was, um, I think uh, one person was like, uh, you know, he, he doesn't know anything about public health. Um, and I was like, well... Well, you know, I do have a master's in public health from Johns Hopkins University, and I am a professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of California, San Francisco. So I might know something about public health. And as a friend, as a dear friend of mine told me, he said that degree has finally come in handy because he could throw that back in someone's face on Twitter. I said, yeah, absolutely, my friend. Absolutely. It comes in handy sometimes. Um, and then the other thing they said was, oh, he's not an ID doctor. And I'm like, you know, well, what the hell does an ID doctor seeing patients um, have any special insight in how broad social media and public health messaging should be around the Thanksgiving holiday? And the answer is they do not, in fact, have any additional insight that would come from being a public health doctor, from being an ID doctor. ID doctors are wonderful. Some of my best friends are ID doctors, but in fact, it's not necessary for the article I wrote. And in fact, the same person was unable to rebut anything actually in my article. Um, and then... Um, and then um, I think one of the other articles got the, uh, got the classic criticism of, uh, oh, he's just doing this to sell his books on reversal and, um, and malignant. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, what is with these people? I was like, you, you do understand these books are published by Johns Hopkins University Press. They are not, in fact, bestsellers. In fact, they have sold rather modestly. They're only read by a handful of 
of, of shut-ins, really. No, of a handful of people interested in these topics. I believe I earned less than a dollar an hour for the first book, and I believe I might still actually have lost money on the second book because I had to buy audio rights back to record the audiobook after I foolishly let them go when I sold the book for, for nothing. And, and as a doctor, if I went to the hospital and I picked up three night shifts, I would make more money than I've ever made from having written two books. So anyone who is so crazy, and also the other disconnect is that why would writing an article on Thanksgiving help me sell a book that has nothing to do with this topic at all? So I, I, there's so many problems in this. And, and what it really reveals to me is like people are unable to argue the merits of the argument that leads inevitably to ad hominem slash motivation questions. It's possibly the case that I think that this stupid going on Twitter in all caps saying, don't do it, don't do it, is stupid. In fact, I do think it is stupid to do that. I think it's a waste of the person's time. I think they're doing it for the, the simple, cheap dopamine hit. I think they, they have lost all perspective when they do that. They, re, they don't realize how unhelpful it is. I also start to wonder, has this person ever actually worked with patients? And I start to wonder that about many people who are tweeting public health messages. We who see patients, actually, I want to read you something that somebody sent me. Quote, I really hope that MDs don't interact like that with their patients in real life. And no way is that an actually an appropriate way to talk to a patient in person when your recommendations don't align with their actions. End quote. Uh, of course, this is, this is, uh, do people not have any experience dealing with people whose actions don't align with the desires that you may have and what's best for not only their health, but the health of their loved ones when it comes to sexual behavior that we have to counsel our patients on? You never get any mileage by just yelling at them, especially when you've already yelled at them for many many months you get no additional mileage and at some point when somebody keeps telling you they're gonna have sex you might want to give them a condom rather than keep telling them they're not they shouldn't have sex uh, that's a, just a simple basic principle of public health and that's not what we see and unfortunately that kind of message that we ought to mitigate this that is not the thing that's reinforced by the algorithms of twitter it's not going to get the huge following the easter egg i had buried in this article was this idea that you know I've observed this rather rather closely. Um, as one tweets about a topic, one gains a certain ceiling of 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 interest. I mean, there are people who are, I think, quite savvy people who tweet about myeloma and lung cancer and MDS, and they reach a ceiling of the people who are interested in, you know, typically in the one to 11,000 range. I mean, that's how many people are interested in myeloma on Twitter, that's how many people are interested in MDS, that's how many people are interested in lung cancer. Then there are people who tweet about multiple cancers, okay, now they can benefit from the, the interest in all those tumor types. I myself am probably in that category. And then there are people who tweet about medicine and evidence-based medicine. They benefit from the extra interest in those topic matters. And again, I'm in that category because that's that predates my interest in oncology. In fact, evidence-based medicine, that's the, the work we did on reversal about a decade ago. Um, I'm not one who tweets about politics that often. It's a few times that they really tick me off. But beyond that, I try not to say the names of these people who I generally don't hold in high regard, politicians. Um, I try to avoid it. But... Once one engages in that aspect, one gains the additional 100,000 that comes with naked politicking. And that is a bad incentive because what that leads to is prominent public health accounts, their feeds become a blend of Trump is stupid, Biden is great, Biden is good, Kamala Harris is great, um, we ought to vote for Biden, Kamala Harris, uh, and you ought to wear a mask, and uh, we shouldn't use hydroxychloroquine until we have a randomized trial, and it becomes a blend of these things. And it almost as if 
we're creating platforms. These aren't party platforms, but these are kind of social media platforms and they're really self-reinforcing. Somebody in that platform who generally says a lot of these things, if they have one or two views that are outside this, they get the pylon. Don't say that, don't say that, don't. And that just it just drives them back into the center of the herd. So the platform is lockdowns good, school opening bad, um, Biden good, Trump bad. Um, uh, that That's the package deal. So if you want to be lockdowns, okay, but they have serious downside, schools should be open, Biden good, uh, masks good. Well, now you're falling out of line on some of the party platform and you're going to get it. You're going to get a lot more, uh, you know, a lot more people pushing back on the the issues that don't align with the, with the platform view. But if one were to be objective, there is no, th- these things are not tied together. One can be pro-school opening, pro-limited uh, lockdowns in some settings, some could be pro-school opening and anti-lockdown, believing that the harms outweigh the benefits, and pro-Biden, and pro-mask. Uh, there can be all these combinations. They, they don't all go together. They're not a package deal. Um, the, 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 algor- the way in which this Twitter works is it doesn't permit that. It doesn't permit people to pick and choose from the different baskets of ideas and hold those ideas. It creates this hurting. Uh, That's what brings the followers. And it encourages people who want to think that they are impartial interpreters of medical evidence and public health to comment profusely about politics, which ultimately undermine their public health messaging. Because to be honest, I mean, how would I feel if somebody was like just openly pro-Trump in like all their messages except for like the few that advise me to do things that are, you know, in, in a public health direction. I mean, let's just flip it on its head at the opposite. Um, just as I was talking, somebody pointed out that um, the they, they tweet an article to the parachute article and they say masks are parachutes so they don't need randomized trials. Oh boy. They're not a parachute, my friend. If they were a parachute, people wouldn't be quibbling about a 50% effect size. The effect size would be 99.999%. So you've misused the parachute analogy. Parachute analogy used correctly, one. Parachute analogy misused, 1,444,342. So it's really kind of a misused analogy. It's pretty misused. Yeah, people don't people don't understand what that means. Um, okay, last thoughts. I like this. I like these two articles. I think they're both, they both articulate very fairly what I was trying to say. Um, that Abstinence-only Thanksgiving, stupid thing to be wasting your breath on. Uh, oh, <laughs> one of the things that comes to my mind is somebody was like, um, oh, if somebody was a smoker, would you tell them um, uh, not to smoke or would you just not talk about it? And I was like, well, let me make your analogy more apt. Let's just say somebody's a smoker and they come to my clinic. And let's just say about ten, eight months ago, we said smoking is super bad and it's something you really need to know about. We stopped all work and stopped all schools and made people stay in their house for two weeks to think about smoking while we showed television streams and we counted the number of people who pass away of smoking-related causes. Then every single day since then, we told you on news all the time, every news outlet, every day, smoking bad. It's the only message you've ever heard for all that time. And then I have a patient come to my clinic and this patient says, I have abstained from smoking for this whole year, even though I love smoking. On Thanksgiving, I'm going to go and smoke four cigarettes. And 
And and if you want to make that that affects others part of the analogy, then you can say, and I'm going to blow that smoke in someone's face. You know, let's just say, oh my, oh my God, okay, easy. I, um, and 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 what would I say as a doctor? And I say, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't do that. And I'm like, well, I'm really going to do that. You know, I know I shouldn't do that. In fact, that's the only thing I've ever heard on TV for the last eight months. I'm going to do it anyway. Well, then I would say can I get you to do it outside? Can I get you to not blow it in someone's face? Can I get you to go to two cigarettes instead of three? In other words, I would do the obvious thing, which is try, realize this person is damn serious about what they're going to do. And I can't keep banging on that they shouldn't do it. In fact, they've heard that message and they don't accept that message. And now I got to try to compromise and do something that will mitigate the damage. Maybe not to smoke it indoors next to children or people with asthma. Maybe to go smoke outside. Maybe to, you know, all the things that we should be thinking about in this moment. You see the analogy? The reason the analogy is flawed is because they know, they know all the facts. They have heard nothing but it. There's not, there's nothing that's like this. And there's no analogy like this in the history of humanity where people would be as aware of the implications of their actions and still telling you they don't prioritize things that way. They are viewing the risk differently than you. They really need to see their loved ones. That's what they're telling you in the poll. I don't know why we don't want to hear them. You know, I wrote in the article that human beings need water, food, sex, and social connections, not necessarily in that order. I mean, People are complex things, but they need these things. These aren't unrealistic desires. Oh, somebody else wrote back, um, it's just like drunk driving. Um, are you going to tell people not to do it or are you going to try to facilitate it? I was like, we do a lot of things to mitigate the harm of drunk driving. When I was a college student, they had a shuttle that went all the way around all the house parties to pick up some kids after hours so that kids wouldn't feel the urge to drive drunk. And then we had like free taxi vouchers. We we had designated drivers. We tell people like just have one drink and then sober up for two hours and drink a glass of water and then go drive. We do other stuff, man. Where are you living? We don't live in a world where we're such absolutists. And Twitter has created a new world. I actually suspect that someday when people reflect on it, that it will have contributed to a worse response than what would have happened without it. A response that is more polarized, that continually divides more, that doesn't see common ground, doesn't meet people where they are, that demands unrealistic things. And then the last thing I would say is many are lamenting the rise in cases in the Midwest. It's an awful thing. And they are pointing to the fact that people did not more fully comply with all of the things that they were told to do. But I think one interpretation that is being under-discussed is the fact that that in and of itself is reflective of the fact that it was not a sustainable things you were asking people to do. It, 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 it eventually wore on them and they gave up doing it for all sorts of reasons because some political bad actor seized upon it and saw an opportunity because it became a deeply polarized issue because it's a very divided country, but for whatever the reason, it is, it represents a failure of the policy. And for all the failings of Sweden, who still has a high rate case count, it's still in the middle. We still don't know the final outcome. We shall see at the end of the day when this is all over, whether who were the wise ones and what did they do that was so wise. But I think that they at least acknowledge that whatever you institute, you have to think about can people hold it up for eight months, for 10 months, for 18 months, for two years. Can they sustain it? That's a key part of policy. And whatever they were doing in South Dakota, they could not sustain it. They didn't sustain it. They were unable to sustain it because perhaps the recommendation was more than what it ought to have been. And if they had done something less, they might have had more cases initially, but they might have had been able to sustain it. I mean, I think these are open policy questions. I don't know the answer, but I think the wrong answer is just to assume that 
we didn't squeeze this issue hard enough. We didn't push hard enough. We didn't tell him enough times not to do it. That is not always the right answer in public health and certainly not in this situation. It's much more complicated. All right. On those positive notes, I encourage people to read these two articles. I encourage people not to tweet at me that you're not an ID doctor. Uh, if you don't like the article, you can just say the things you don't like about the article and move on from there. Okay. You can write your own damn article. You know, that's not, also not against the rules. You can write your own article and you can say, here's your, here, let me, actually, let me help you write your article. You'll write your article as like, VP is wrong. Caps lock Twitter messages save lives. People want to have Thanksgiving, but you know what? They're too stupid to know what they really want, and they don't know how to think about risk. And even though they know about the risk or have heard about the risk, they don't really understand the risk of SARS-CoV-2 because they're obviously too stupid to think about it. Uh, therefore, an all-caps lock message delivered on Twitter in an uncompromising and absolute way will persuade these people who I've already deemed as too stupid to make the decision for themselves and obviously prioritizing the things in the wrong way because human connections don't matter to people. Um, they're too stupid to make that decision and ergo an all-caps lock message might break through that stupidity and get them not to go. And that's why I disagree with VP's article that we ought to mitigate the risk. In fact, we shouldn't. We should do nothing else. We should only tweet in all-caps lock messages um, or other messages that generate the most retweets by people who feel the same as we do because that, of course, is the most effective public health messaging. So there's your article. I happen to, happen to have write it for you. Um, it, no need to include me. This is what I often tell people, please, no need to include me. In fact, I recommend you don't in the acknowledgments. Thanks. Oh, one last thing. I forgot to mention that when the mask study was published, there were a lot of prominent doctors who went online and said, why is this even published? We shouldn't publish articles like this. It could compromise the mask message. Um, I wonder... If we live in a world where there's a growing faction of people who believe in conspiracy theories and they believe that this virus is fake and the masks don't work, I wonder if openly saying that you support not publishing a truthful study because they can't handle that and saying that publicly on Twitter is going to feed the conspiracy theory? Or is it going to diminish the conspiracy theory? Is it a smart thing to do or a dumb thing to do? I'm personally willing to die on the hill that if somebody did a true study, they ought to publish it irrespective of the findings. In fact, maybe we should blind the reviewers from the results so that doesn't let them taint them. Um, Bashal asked an interesting question that if this study had the opposite results, what would people say? Of course, they'd be popping champagne and be celebrating this mask study. Um, but to say publicly that we ought not publish things because they... Uh, People can't handle it. Um, that's 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 no good. And on that positive note, we're going to shift to the discussion with Adam Sifu and Scott Stern. I hope you enjoy it. This is going to be a riveting discussion. I'm joined in plenary session via Zoom by Dr. Adam Sifu and Dr. Scott Stern, who are both professors of medicine at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. They are both practicing general internists um, and um, I think two of the most formative people in my own training um, because they're consummate clinicians and fantastic educators. Gentlemen, it's great to see you both. Great to see you. Kind of like a flashback to the late 2000s. Right? <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or as we That's call funny. it, the, the glory days of Pritzker. The glory days. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 
It was all downhill when you started getting better students in the years after me. <laughs> when you're... You, left, you left and our rankings began to climb. <laughs> they did climb because you gave the free tuition and, and you got much better students. And, and yeah, it couldn't keep up anymore. Well, it's a pleasure to see you both here. And um, we're going to talk about a number of things and talk about your new podcast, which is why you're, you're coming here. Um, but I, I had a bunch of questions for you. I mean, first, I wonder if you both might um, give us a little bit of background about yourselves. Um, you know, you're both educators, you're both internists, but you come at this from different paths. Um, but teaching is something you both take seriously. Lord knows why, but you take it, you lo- you take it seriously. Right. So Scott, why don't you go first and then, then we'll come to Adam. Um, so how, tell us a little about your career and, and what brought you back to Pritzker. Well, um, after finishing my residency, I spent about five years in private practice. And then my wife said, well, we have to move back to Chicago. <laughs> and uh, that started uh, a long history of medical education. It started with teaching students in the third year clerkship, eventually becoming clerkship director eventually running the course on disease, clinical pathophysiology. Um, And then in the last 20 years or so, working with Adam and Diane to really focus on how we teach students to diagnose patients. And uh, we've spent the last 20 years focusing on writing a book, Symptom to Diagnosis, which has now had four editions, working on technologies to improve how students learn that. It's incredibly important, and uh, we have a great time doing it, actually. I, I, I I I know that very well. How about you, Adam? Um, your path, medical education, a lot of overlap with Scott, but a little bit different in the beginning. Yeah, um, I trained on the East Coast. I ended up in Chicago, like we all do, because my wife decided to do a second residency, matched out here. And so we came to Chicago in 1997 for, the, for three years while she finished training. And now I think I'm going to die here. <laughs> <laughs> and I came, I got very interested in medical education uh, during a chief residency year was really interested in uh, resident education. But when I got here, what was sort of open and available were more student um, education opportunities. And I kind of quickly realized that I liked that better. Um, uh, I think the students are a little bit more open to everything you say, while residents, you often have to go through, you know, some time convincing them that you know what you're talking about and that what you're teaching them is important. Um, While students are a little bit more open-minded. It's kind of like teaching an an eight-year-old versus a teenager. I see. I see. Yes. Yes. I mean, I think the biggest barrier to teaching residents is um, they they can get to the point where they just care how things are done, not necessarily why things are done, because they're you know they're working really hard, and students still have a lot of room to talk about the theory of medicine, how it ought to be, and not specifically how do you get IR to do something on a Friday. Absolutely. So I, I think it, it yeah. benefits as well. It's part of the thing which benefits like having them on the wards for care, right? Yes. Um, because they tend to have a, a very broad view of what's going on. They often recognize things that are wrong either inside or outside the hospital with the residents who are, as you say, you know, focused on how the hell am I going to get this person out or how the hell am I going to get this person a chest tube kind of miss out on. But I always know the feeling in the resident's heart when you're on service and the student comes around and they say, you know, hey, can we talk for a minute about the mechanism of action of bortezomib? And the resident just slumps and is like, my God, we got to talk about We got things to do, buddy. We don't have time to get into this. It's so I, true. I feel like I'm in a good place that now I can say, you know, I don't know. And I don't care. It's not important. <laughs> you know? What's yeah. important is that I know it works. 
And I can often, you know, disrespect Dr. Stern, who's taught them all the pathophysiology. And I'm like, that doesn't matter. You show me a trial that says it works. <laughs> Any comment, Dr. Stern? Oh. No. <laughs> well, but, I'm just going to leave that there. Okay. I, I guess one more, one more piece of introduction. I mean, I think... Um, you know, it was, it was always interesting to me as a student, um, Scott, when um, that you had had sort of, uh, you know, some experience in, in the busy internist private practice world. I think you relied on it often in your lectures because, I mean, you took care of many patients, you, you saw a lot, um, and it gave you a, a sort of a very, um, I think, a, a very good perspective from the point of a student thinking about how the stuff we're learning now that seems one step removed from being a doctor is not as removed as we might might think. Um, how did that shape you? And and at some point, did you ever feel like you aren't, I mean, after so many years back at University of Chicago, is that private practice mindset kind of washing away with every year? No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think all of the clinical experiences that we have help to inform our teaching. And so really good teaching really, I think, blends two things. One is real experience because the real world is complex and real patients are complex and it's very nuanced. And if you try to teach without that nuanced understanding, you're really oversimplifying it. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, the work that Adam and I both do to really understand disease, despite him making fun of me about it, <laughs> and understanding the approaches to symptoms allows us to not just teach from an anecdote, but actually teach a process. And mm -hmm. so the best of both worlds incorporates, here's a process, and let me give you some examples of why this really matters. Because in real life, we're talking about real patients, and what I have to do is I have to convince students that this really matters. At the end of the day, the buck stops with the patient. We have to take care of them. And the more I can make that come alive, the better they'll be able to remember it. Yeah. Scott, don't let me put words in your mouth, but I know, uh, you know, you are one of the people in practice that I like talking about cases with the best um, and whether it's, you know, picking your brain for interesting facts or just, boy, this was a cool case. Let me tell you about it. Um, try to brag about what a great diagnosis <laughs> I made or something. And, and I remember you saying that one of the things that sort of drove you out of private practice was that there was there was less of that among the colleagues that you guys ended up talking so much about the practice and less about actually the practice of taking care of patients. That's really true. It's been a long time, but one of the things that was a bit discouraging when I was in private practice is you would go to meetings and at meetings, you know, there might be a discussion of a particular topic, medical topic, but oftentimes in the breakouts or, you know, over your cup of coffee, everyone was talking about the logistics of practice. And one of the things I really love about the, being at the university is that's, Sure, every now and then we talk a little bit about the logistics, but we really care passionately about the medicine and about the patients. And I'm not a business person. I want to talk about patients. I want to talk about science. I want to talk about how we care for them. And it was a, a bit of a problem uh, back then. I want to talk about medicine and oncology and science. and um, But too often, all I talk about is how much FTE support you have for this or that, which is <laughs> the downside of our line of work. But, but I want to ask you about this. I mean, you both have, uh, I mean to some degree focused on this in your career extensively, made it the subject of your book, which is clinical diagnosis. And clinical diagnosis to me is, um, you know, the most interesting thing in medicine um, because it is a semi-quantitative thing. It's, it's not fully quantitative. There's no computer out there that can tell you, you know, X, Y, Z probability to the second decimal place of what are the things you should be worried about, at least not yet. Um, but it's not... It's not qualitative 
100% either. It's a semi-quantitative scale. The body is really complicated. We learn all the parts of the body, but the body breaks down in often predictable ways. And there's a certain pattern to the way it breaks down and the same things happen over and over. And there is no... I don't know. I mean, the the way you get better at it, the way you think about it is it's a very sort of right brain, left brain problem. It's a very sort of um, complex task. I'm wondering if you might talk about when did you start to think about clinical diagnosis as as sort of an as sort of this this entity in and of itself? And and how did you construct the book and what went into that thinking? You know, my whole view of it is shaped through your book because that's how I, you know, was introduced to it. I think the I think I was second edition. Um, uh, but um, but um, but 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 how were you introduced to clinical reason and clinical diagnosis? Um, maybe we'll go in reverse order. We'll start with Adam and, and, and come to Scott. Yeah. Yeah, I'll maybe start before the book and then let Scott talk a little bit more about the book. I, I still remember the conversation in the workroom that we first had as we were thinking about how we were going to do it. But it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, I, I went through a regular medicine residency. I loved it. Um, I, I loved the, you know, sort of diagnostic part of it. Um, but I think what it really hit home to me was actually moving to Chicago ending up with an entirely different population and recognizing all the nuance that changed where, you know, my clinic in Boston was overwhelmingly sort of elderly Russian Jewish immigrants. Okay. (laughs) And like I had mastered those people. I could take, you know, a chest pain history in five minutes and I was perfect. I moved to Chicago. It's a completely different bunch of people. And I'm like, you know, I know medicine, but I start, I sit down and I start listening to how people describe their symptoms. And I'm like, wow, I know nothing. Um, and it really sort of pointed out to me that, as you say, you know, there's there's a really quantitative piece to diagnosis. You know, you say like, I know what NEST3 sounds like. I know what REL sound like. I know how those, how predictable those are of various findings. But boy, there's this human being between those two things. Um, and so, you got to incorporate that into it. And I think as you kind of alluded to, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm fairly confident we're not going to be replaced by artificial intelligence because to get the data clean is nearly impossible. That's a little bit off the, no, no, no. I think, but it is exactly what I was driving at. Yeah. Yeah. Scott, how about you? How did you get into this? Well, um, actually, I realized recently it started back when I was in medical school because in 1982, I took the CPP class, the course on disease, and I recently found that my evaluation from 1982 and my complaint <laughs> in 1982 was you've taught us about diseases, but I don't know how to evaluate a patient yes. that I don't know how to decide when someone comes in with a symptom, which of these 10 diseases they have. And I actually wrote that in the evaluation. And then in uh, around 2002, as I was at a career kind of branch point, um, decided it'd be time to write a book on it. And what we learned over the years was actually what you said. You said right brain and left brain. And another way to think about it is thinking fast and thinking slow. And what's modeled a lot is the fast thinking where you try to recognize a diagnosis. What's poorly modeled is how you go through it algorithmically and in a process. And over the years, we've really worked on that paradigm. Adam had maybe the most important uh, way to express this back early on when he was able to articulate that one of the first steps was to take a big differential diagnosis and to break it into groups with what he called pivotal points. He was the first one I've heard use that expression. 
And from there, we built on that paradigm. And that's allowed us to really take that process, the fast process, and not replace it, but augment it with a very slow, deliberate practice that helps us when we're stuck. And, and you need both. I mean, I think that's so important because as you practice, the fast will get better and better and better. And you, you get to the point where you walk in the room and you're like, oh, I, I know exactly what needs to be done here. And you're all fools for not knowing it. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you feel that way. But, um, but you fall into traps because every, I don't know, 2% of the time, 3% of the time, you're wrong. And, and you need the slow process so you don't have early closure, so you keep an open mind, so you don't miss the thing that seems like less likely to be the case but might be the case in this instance. You need to balance the two. And that's always, I think, the important thing is to, to always take a step back and, and see, am I missing anything? Is there anything that I, I'm, I've prematurely ruled out? Um, and you guys do a book. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that it's crucial for the teaching of it because um, I can think my most recent experience was just a few weeks ago. I had a patient who came in with cholecystitis. Students saw the patient, spent 35 minutes with the patient, had a spectacular differential diagnosis, um, but hadn't come up with a diagnosis. It, it took me, you know, 95 seconds, basically, yes. walking in the room. Um and, you know, the student was impressed and that was nice, but, but to be able to explain like, this is how I made the diagnosis was to be able to say, you know, this is the person, you know, the age, the risk factors, the previous medical problems, um, you know, these are the symptoms, these are the signs. And then if we put that into a differential diagnosis with clear pivotal points, you know, for abdominal pain, we're thinking about, um, you know, sort of an anatomic differential diagnosis where we're talking about left upper, or sorry, right upper quadrant, and then, and then, you know, what the um, what the sort of temporal uh, progression of this disease is, and using all that, then you can really explain everything that went on in your mind quickly because we've all been doing it for decades now. So it's kind of removing the magic from it, which is really important because yes. to an outsider, yes. it looks like magic. You walk in the room. And that's not helpful. It, it's good for your ego, but yeah. it doesn't help the learner, yes, right? Yes, yes, um, And the other thing I'd say about your comments about practice is practice is really important, but it needs to be coupled with feedback. Yeah. So if you don't get the feedback about when you're right and wrong, right. you don't get better. Right. And one of the things we always encourage everyone is to follow up on their cases. So when they're wrong, you say, why was I wrong? How do I avoid being wrong again? I think I, I read this once called um, kind and wicked learning environments. And a kind learning environment is where you immediately know if you are right or wrong. So as you do it, you can just constantly uh, a, a change your disposition. A wicked learning environment is if you, at a long time away from the decision, you learn you're right or wrong, and you only learn it sporadically. And we have created in medicine, and we, we make it worse and worse each year because you know, once upon a time, you guys were uh, uh, internists and you took care of people in and out of the hospital. Now everyone is, uh, uh, there's the hospitalist, there's the, the clinic, there's the clinic doctor. But I hear there's a movement to create something new. It's called a generalist. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's a, some new idea, <laughs> new it's idea. It's an old idea. It's an old idea, but it's, yeah, it's right. got a new brand. But, um, but I guess we've done a lot in our system with the complexity, how many people touch a patient and the fact that sometimes I see a patient, I may not know what happened to them. And that makes it more and more wicked for me to learn, I guess, to your point. Point, whether I was right or wrong a year ago, two years ago. That's right. I and it takes more work, yeah. right? Because to make that wicked environment kinder, it often means extra work to follow up on those patients, you know, to make calls, to like go see them three days after you admitted them to the hospital. Um, and I often, I often tell the, the students as they're becoming residents that like, 
you know, you're going to have a much more humane residency than I had, which is, you know, I think good, though I can argue about it. Um, <laughs> but I think what it does is it puts a whole lot more responsibility, right, on the learner, because yeah. like, I couldn't get out of residency without having taken care of, you know, 75 people with chest pain. But it's conceivable now you get out with 20 people and you got to work to make those 20 people kind of valuable for you. Now, I wanted to ask you both this question, and um, maybe it's a, it's a sore spot for me, so that's why I'm asking it. But, um, you know, you're both professors at a premier, premier medical school. I'm biased, of course. I'm an alumni. But um, premier medical school. Um, and and I've, worked, I've worked at some premier places. I guess I currently work at one, um, at UCSF. Um, one of my concerns has been that and maybe it's just a pet peeve of mine, um, like Adam has many, um, which is that um, I don't like it when students don't want to learn to be doctors. Um, and, and there's a growing fraction of students who comes in to these things. And the last thing that these students want to learn is how to be a doctor. And it makes me very angry. And there are different flavors that annoy me. One flavor is the person that says, oh, I'm only going to study tumors of the cerebellum and i know i'm going to study that and that's the only thing i want to learn about i'm going to be a lab i have a lab and a correlate and blah 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 blah. there's another person who comes in and says i want to create some startup company we're going to make all this money somebody comes in and i want to be a writer and i'm like you know it's fine yeah we all have other ambitions adam is a like to do pottery you know we all have things we like to do but but damn it while you're here you're going to learn how to be a doctor and you know why because that's still the core mission of what we're doing in this degree and that is something that I believe in so firmly. Even if you someday want to abandon it, while you're here, you got to learn to do it really well. And that's why I'm going to tell you all these things that you think are not relevant for you. Um, I wonder if you might reflect on this this tension you feel. I mean, of course, there's every year there's students who want to be consummate clinicians, but there's got to be some students who piss you off because they don't seem to care as much as you care. Scott, what are your thoughts? Sure. Uh, well, um, it is a problem and it's such a bigger problem than you've, than you've mentioned already. There's a small subset of students who go to medical school who don't plan on staying in it. But a much larger problem is that the focus on being successful in medical school often compromises actually learning. And what mm. I mean by that is students need to do well on the boards typically. That's changing right now, but they've often needed to do well on the boards and in order to get the residencies that they want. And that preparation, that board prep actually takes away from what I call doctor prep. Yes. And I often tell them that the course I'm teaching them is how to be a doctor. It's not about the boards. I want them to be good doctors. You're going to take care of patients. Their lives are at stake. And if all you learn are facts, then all you know is facts, and then you can't integrate it and take care of a patient. That's a much more pervasive problem that drives me completely nuts. Um, and, you know, I understand it. You know, to give them proper due, we are all smart enough to realize what are the things we need to do to be successful. And if we've structured the system improperly yes. so that the rewards are that you get rewarded by studying facts rather than being a better doctor, we've got to restructure the system. But the net sum of it on the educational side is it's very frustrating. Yes. So can I ask you, so there are people who come to medical school because they want an MD to go with their MBA um, or to go with their computer science degree, um, which is fine, right? We want doctors in those fields. They can probably do a better job at running a hospital than someone who's just an MBA. And there are also people who come because 
you know, psychiatry comes to mind because I see a lot of students who kind of come into medical school with really psychiatry on their mind and therefore are, are less um, driven to learn, you know, the, the body type medicine, because certainly if you're going to be an orthopedist, you got to know medicine, right? You got to understand pulmonary emboli at least. Um, so what do you do with those people? I mean, should we have different degree programs? Should we have different tracks within medical school? Um, I guess, <laughs> my, I mean, I, I, I guess I would say, here are my thoughts, and I'm curious what Scott thinks. Um, I guess I would say, I mean, you're, you're asking a, a very good question. I guess I would say the way I would start to reform the system, because everything Scott said also rings true to me as well, which is that people are, from the moment they enter med school, you know, there's that old joke. It's not an old joke. It's a true story. There's my friend, you know, he was a third year medical student, and he went to one of the former neurosurgeons at your uh, UFC, and he said, you know, I want to go into neurosurgery. And this guy was like, okay, okay, uh, what year are you? And he's like, I'm a third year. And he's like, oh, boy. It's a little late for that, my friend. He's like, you want to go into neurosurgery, you got to come here as an M1 minimum or pre-med. And, I, and then we, we extrapolate the joke. And in the way we tell it, it's like, you got to be, you know, kindergarten or first grader. You got to think about your research project. Okay. So, I mean, the way, I mean, but it's, there's some truth to it, which is that it's become very competitive in that specialty. So I think the first reform I would do is the way in which we reimburse specialties is fundamentally skewed. And from that, so many bad things happen. People aspire to certain specialties because they make boatloads of money. But why do they make boatloads of money? My carpenter doesn't make boatloads of money. And some of these things are no offense to the people who do it, but there's a, akin to carpentry. I mean, so if we if we incentivize the professions we want, I think we would do a lot to eliminate the desire to do some few spot uh, specialties. And, and from there, I think, um, you know, things would be changed a little bit. So students wouldn't be scheming so much about whatever bone morphogenic protein project lab work they're doing in their first year. And they could spend more time being a doctor. Your second question is one I struggle with, which is like, I mean, the related question, which is what about the people who want this degree not to be a doctor? And I guess I would say maybe, I don't know how you feel, but I think like the MD doesn't make you a doctor and you're still very far from a doctor. And even residency doesn't make you a doctor. It's only those first few years where it, it, things really hang on your head that make you a doctor. And then when you stop practicing or decrease your practice, I think you lose the doctor side. So I guess one of my critics of all these administrators is, you know, they can easily enact bureaucratic things that we ought to do in the clinic. I was like, you come for a half-day clinic, you try to run my clinic and do all this checklist, box, whatever thing you're prompting me. I was like, I will strangle you if you think it's easy to do. Um, and then you, and then now make it five clinics a day, you know, five clinics a week or 10 clinics. Um, it's very difficult. And so it's easy for the person who doesn't know what it's like to do to add bureaucracy. So I guess I would say I'm not convinced that, that it, they have gained any perspective. But, you know, of course, you know me, I'm a cynical I'm a cynical person. I want, I want MD to mean this is somebody who wants to care about patients, take care of patients. I want the academic infrastructure to say people like what you two do. You know, you should be in the top of the pecking order in an academic system, not the somebody who has a hobbyist clinic and and runs a lab, which is the complete inversion of of where we are. Um, what are your thoughts, Scott? Boy, you, everything you said just made me want to jump up and down and cheer. I mean. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, I come to medicine um, from a personal history of uh, a loss in the family that drove me to want to be a doctor in the old sense of the world that you want to take care of people. And boy, if I could select one thing in people, it'd be that they actually want to care for and about folks. So those are two different things, caring for and about them. You actually have to, it has to matter to you 
what happens to your patients. And if not, there's a big problem. Yes. Um, that's really key. And the people who don't want to do that, do something else for crying out loud. You know, you want someone to care about you when you're sick. Yeah. And you also want someone who's competent. And those are two different things. And I agree totally with what you said about the checklist. Medicine has gone away from evaluating patients and what their concerns are. So I've got to check this. I've got to check that. I mean, the, the Medicare annual visit yeah. sounds like you're a survey person, <laughs> um, uh, you know, working. Taking a census. Some, yeah. Take it, yeah. I heard somebody in, in the office the other day doing one of these. I'm like, I will shoot myself before <laughs> I do one of those. Yeah. Adam, what about you? I'm just thinking that Vinay wants to like reinstitute maintenance of certification. And if people don't live up to his level at every part of their career, he's going to take their MD degree. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what else I will say? Because um, so I, you know, I, I now I'm, I do probably a lot more with Hemonk fellows over the last few years than I've done with, I mean, I teach some student classes, but uh, I just steal Adam's class and try to teach that. Uh, <laughs> it's a total knockoff. It's a total inferior product they're getting, but it is exactly modeled after your fourth year class. Um, anyway, but um, when I teach the Hemonk fellows, my, I mean, my absolute pet peeve is people who only want to learn one tumor type, which is just, and, and, and I'm also pet peeve is that when people come to me and they say, well, what tumor are you interested in? And I was like, well, you know what? I try to be interested in every, every tumor and every benign hematology condition because I'm doing kind of policy research about drug approval and you you draw insights from you know something in pancreas cancer and you apply it to prostate cancer or you know something in heart failure and you apply it to cancer i mean you find that your mind makes connections in in unforeseen ways that you you hinder yourself if you don't go into this process wanting to be as broad and knowledgeable as possible um and 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 and, and to really prioritize the clinical side of things which is at the ultimately i think the business we're in Okay, but I have another another pet peeve that I want to ask you both about because we could bash this for a long time. There is a subset of internist that gets, this is maybe a different flavor of it. Um, there's clinical reasoning and diagnostic reasoning, and you both teach that, I think, marvelously. And actually, I would have to say your, your guys' CPP and T and then the third year clerkship was like the moment that the, the, the spark was lit in my, for me, to actually like this was the right choice to go to medical school. Because before then, I was like, oh, my God, kill me. Kill me now because this is not for, I made a big mistake. But so like that was when the spark was lit for me. So, uh, you know, I have a, I have a lot of a, a, a respect and admiration for this process. Um um, and I think there's there's the everyday clinical reasoning, which I think is a beautiful thing. And that's what you guys spend a lot of time thinking about, focusing on the everyday, day in and day out clinical reasoning. Yes, there's zebras, but there are a whole lot more horses. There's this thing that happens at these academic conferences, ACP, um, where people put on a show. They put on the I'm the best zebra doctor show. And there are a few doctors who do it, and they're nationally known, and they have oversized reputations. And there have been a few throughout history. There was you know, I, I, I think, um, what was her name? Faith um, uh, Fitzgerald uh, from San Diego used to be marvelous at it. But I think she was also sort of a, a great day in, day out doctor. But there are a few who do this. And I guess I wonder if the question I've always asked is, um, yes, you can be Sherlock Holmes. Yes, you can put on a great morning report for the zebra of all zebras, some ink I've never heard of. You know, you'll know that test. Um, but th but that isn't that isn't the same as day in day out clinical reasoning. That's that's a parlor trick. Day in and day out clinical reasoning is what you really ought to focus on. Yes, you can be good at zebras, but don't don't put all the focus on zebras. I how do you guys think about this? Being good at horses, zebras, 
this this parlor trick. I call it a parlor trick, but that's demeaning. But I meant to be that way. I think we can talk about it in the realm of the podcast in a way. Yes. Because, I mean, you know, I think right now we're probably at peak podcast, right? And and I feel like I've missed the TV um, renaissance, but I've been, you know, there for the podcast renaissance. Um, and when Scott and I started to talk about this, I deep inside felt a little bit ridiculous because I was like, God, you know, does everybody in the world have to have a podcast? <laughs> and I listened to a bunch of the medical podcasts out there, and there are some very good ones. Um, um, but a lot of them really, the ones which kind of think about diagnosis yes. and talk about diagnosis, yes. um, really focus on zebra hunting, crazy yeah, stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I think what... Um, you know, Scott and I have learned to do well and to teach well is 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 not that. You know, yes, you need to be smart, you need to know a lot of stuff, and you need to be able to pick up those, you know, zebras when they come in. But for the most part, it's having a really clear process, um, being able to take care of, you know, the 99% of patients. And among those 99% of patients are a lot of patients with the really common diseases who present in really strange ways. Um, and so both, I think, as we were writing symptoms diagnosis, but also as we've been creating the podcast, I mean, Scott, correct me, when I think back at the sort of eight episodes that we've done so far, which all revolve around one of our cases, none of them are crazy diagnoses. That's right. I agree. Um, you know, so, some, I think most probably present in a somewhat surprising way, Um but for the most part, there are things like, oh, yeah, you know, I learned about that when I was a second year or right. a third year. Right. Um, but I need to figure out how I do a good job at diagnosing that in kind of a fast, parsimonious way. So do you think and that – oh, go on. Yeah, go on. No, I want to know what you think. Well, what I was going to add to that is most of the errors that occur are not because you missed a zebra because yes. they're uncommon by definition. Yes. It's because you missed the, common present, the uncommon presentation – of the common disease. And what the literature shows, and Adam has researched this and I have researched this, is that many, many diseases present atypically all the time. As a matter of fact, classical presentations are the exception rather than the rule. And so most errors are made are not because it's something you've never heard of. It's because it's something you've heard of often and you're just not recognizing it. So I think a good approach will get you there. And the other thing I would argue is that a good approach will often get you to the zebra, even if you don't recognize uh -huh. it. So a good approach uh -huh. takes you uh -huh. through the process. Yeah. And I had, like I had a woman many years ago now who came in with dizziness and it wasn't clear what was going on. But as part of her symptom complex, she mentioned that when she drives, she has double vision. Well, double vision means cranial nerves three, four, and six are sure. off because yeah. that's the only way you get double vision, which clearly shows a problem in the brainstem. And she got an MRI that showed a vertebral artery aneurysm. I see. I've never read about a vertebral artery aneurysm right, before. Right, right. But there, it wasn't genius. It's a process. It's a good process. And that's what we have to get across. Yeah, and I, I agree. And and my bias is, is that I think that um, the excessive focus on those kind of dramatic, uh, you know, it, it has a morning report flair, but it's not, again, it's a disconnected from the day in, day out average practice where um, getting better at the common things and, and getting better around decision making on the common things and understanding risk benefit and, and getting a sense of what things are right for what people, that's where more money is than, than these sorts of, I call them parlor tricks. Um, now you've come to, you've, uh, I was going to come to your podcast. Don't worry. I was going to, I was going to get there, but, but you've mentioned it and I enjoyed listening to the first episode. Of course it, it made me feel like, well, well, first of all, I think I texted Adam and I said something like, 
you guys, like, you must have scripted it or something. There's, I was like, surely there were more errors because I, I make a podcast. I know how many errors go into it. Uh, but uh, Adam said it was a pretty natural thing and it didn't take too many takes, which... Uh, made me more angry. Um, but um, I, I think, the, 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 of course, the first case was just sort of a, just a, a seminal case um, a, uh, about the truck driver presenting with um, pneumonia. And, and, and Adam had a process where, I don't want to spill the beans, but um, it, it was a case that actually I remember because I think, uh, I think Scott presented it when I was a student. And, and I remember um, that it has, it has the lessons of differential, but it also has the meta lessons of um, don't don't stereotype people. Keep an open mind. Um, people are complex and 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 surprise you in lots of ways. Um, and so I don't want to say what the case was, but I thought it was just really just a classic discussion of how you think about a common complaint um, and how you 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 keep your mind open. Um, and 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 then the whole podcast is that. I mean, it's really like I mean, who's your target audience? Your target audience must be all the people who are in medical school, third and fourth years, probably all the people in internal medicine residency. And then probably a practicing doctor who has wishes that they could sort of rekindle um, that sort of thinking that, you know, sometimes they get, we all get trapped in our, in our, in our tracks. Um, I wonder if you might talk about, I don't know, what your, what your goal is with the podcast and, and who you want to reach and, and, and what you hope that you give them. Maybe we'll go with Scott first and then we'll go to Adam. Yeah. Well, I'm actually going to turn it over to Adam first. This was okay. his brainchild. And so let me let him take okay. his first crack at this. It, it, it's funny listening to you because you, I think you described what our intent was very well. Um, we, because, you know, we're 21st century ed educators, we recognize that everybody learns in their own way, right? Not everybody learns from a textbook. Scott has done a ton of work on figuring out how to, how to bring kind of the textbook to life and the sort, sort of symptom to diagnosis type reasoning to life and all sorts of really um, novel computer-based ways. Um, and we thought it would be neat to do that as a podcast. So someone who's, say, going through a clerkship or who's, you know, doing electives during their fourth year could spend some time listening uh, to the podcast. Um, it's been so much fun to do because I think we both prep in the same way. It's just we just sort of look over the book, remind ourselves of, you know, the differential diagnoses maybe that we're not doing on a daily basis. And then our conversations are really just that. It's like, hey, we're going to talk about a great case and one of us is going to be a little bit more prepped so he can actually deliver some real take-home information. Um, but as we got through the first three or four episodes, I began to think, as you mentioned, that well, I really hope this is fun for some people who are beyond training, who can say like, Ugh, you know, a lot of my days are the usual slog of like not doing anything right. terribly exciting. And this is a great time to be like, huh, here's a cool case, which I got to think through myself. And then let me remind myself of like, how do I, how do I frame my anemia, you know, differential diagnosis? And what are all those things that I don't see much, but I should still think about? Scott, you, you're nodding. Yeah, that strikes. Well, I agree with all that. I do think people learn in different ways. And so there is the book and now the podcast and other tools. And I think that's important. And I think the other people we want to hit is basically anybody who's a provider providing primary care. You know, these days, that's, uh, of course, internal medicine, it's family medicine, it's emergency medicine, because the same problems reiterate in all of whether in the clinic or the emergency room, it's the same problems. The epidemiology of disease is a little different in the different locations, but it's very similar. Similar. Nurse practitioners now do uh, a greater bulk of primary care than in the past and physicians assistants. So the entire audience, not to mention, as you said, 
practicing physicians are people we hope will, you know, benefit. And, and the title of the podcast is, uh, is it Symptom or Diagnosis, just like the book? It's the Symptoms of Diagnosis podcast. And how many episodes are you going to have? You said you had recorded eight already, but how many are coming? I think we promised 30. There, there's supposed to be one for every chapter in the book. So basically any important symptom you can think of, there'll be a podcast on that. Um, and we sort of hope that, you know, unlike a plenary session or a fresh air, which will go on, you know, until the end of the world, um, <laughs> we sort of hope what this ends up as is like, here, these are 30 episodes which live there. The stuff that we talk about is not stuff that's going to change a whole lot and people can go back to And maybe if one of us has a great thought walking to work someday, we can record an extra one. It's like the season one of Serial. It's not like, yes, yes. yes. Okay. It's, it's going to be there. It's just going to sit there and people are going to keep going to it. Yeah. No, I think that's terrific. Um, okay. I, since I have you guys for like 10 more minutes, I thought I, uh, there's one more question I've been, I, I wanted to ask you both. There, there is so much talk these days about physician burnout. Everyone's burning out. They're burnt burnt to a crisp and they're burnt out and and i guess i think about both of you because you guys seem like you are are a hundred percent burnout resist proof you know you're burnout resistant you you don't have burnout and i wonder i mean if i were to like identify causes of burnout i think the more in which doctors have let people who don't know anything about being a doctor control us how we see patients, when we see patients, at what time frame we see patients, what checkboxes we check, that makes us, I think, fundamentally unhappy. And doctors have, you know, they've signed themselves up for it in many cases by selling their practices to, you know, these conglomerates who then come and make it hor- make it unpleasant for them. But I guess I'm wondering about you two, how you two think about burnout. Um, do you ever experience it? Or how are you, why do you seem, why does it seem as if to me you're very resilient to it? And and what, and maybe somebody might take away some advice from how you guys think about it. Well, I'm the oldest. Should I go first here, Adam? <laughs> you should be the most burnt out. You shouldn't even be working anymore. Yeah. Many people have said that, actually. I don't take that personally. No. <laughs> um, um, I think there's a couple of things that can help to avoid it. I think one, it helps to remember that you actually, The word that actually comes to mind is that you love your patients. It's, you know, we don't have a good word for this in English, really, but you care for them in a way that's a very personal relationship. You touch them, you sit with them, you, and when you, when you sit in the room, if you can connect with that set of running and looking at your watch and looking at the computer, that helps a lot. I mean, it, it, it's a remarkable relationship that's unique compared to the other relationships that we have in our life and not like most other people's work. I think the other thing that helps is you should, I happen to love the academic aspect of it too. I like the creative part. I like thinking, how can I do this differently? How can I image how I'm going to teach something or work on it? Or how can I do it better? That creative component, whatever it might be, whatever you're doing is really helpful. Um, but what you said is true. You need some control. If everybody else is controlling your schedule and everybody else is telling you what boxes to do and you don't have any sense of that for yourself, I think you're at risk. I, I don't, I've been lucky enough my career has not been like that and I've been able to focus on things that I love doing and that's been very helpful. So when they ask you to do something you don't want to do, what do you tell them? Go to hell? Uh, uh, well, <laughs> go to um, You know, I think uh, I once gave a graduating address to Pritzker students and I said, you have to say yes often but no occasionally. 
So people, when you collaborate with others and you work with others, you want to help them often. And oftentimes you'll say yes for things that aren't too big that you can help out with. But you have to have your own vision of what your mission is. And you have to be sure that what you're saying yes to doesn't stop you from attending to your mission. And so every now and then you have to say no. Like I, this came up last quite a while ago when I was, you know, they wanted me to do a big administrative job that I didn't want. And I had to say, I'm not going to do That's not what I want to do. You know, really, you get one crack at life. No one's going to give you a rewind. When you end, you end. You don't get to do it again. So you better choose what you want to do with this life, what matters to you. Because if you're just a nice guy and you do what everybody else wants to, you to do, you're never going to do what you should have done. Adam, what are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, I would underline just about everything Scott said. And, and I have to say, I mean, it's been it's been educational for me. I mean, it's great talking to the two of you because I sort of look at both of you guys as like both colleagues and mentors at the same time, right? To be able to to see how you both sort of live your life and, and outline your career. And it's been great working closely with Scott because you know we have this one part of our career which we're both very interested in and we both work on. But then much of our other, and, and I guess our clinical life is very similar, but much of our other sort of, you know, I don't know, scholarly academic interests are quite different. Um, and what I've seen both of us do is to, you know, purposely shed things that aren't interesting to us. And also as our interests change, sort of migrate in those. So, I mean, you could certainly say, oh, boy, you're so lucky, you know, you became a general internist and you love being a general internist and you've been able to do it now for, you know, whatever, almost 30 years. The fact is, you know, my career has changed a ton over that time and it's changed because I've changed and I've been able to keep it sort of rich, interesting, satisfying with a couple of very core things, you know, patient care being probably the biggest one that's a thread through the whole thing that I love. Um, the other thing when you talk about burnout and work-life balance, and I think we've talked about this before, that the whole, when people start talking about work-life balance, I get just like really sort of agita because, um, you know, it's all your life, you know, and you just have to figure out how you're going to get it all to work for you. And I think most people will say, look, man, I couldn't see patients all the time. I couldn't, you know, work with Scott all the time. But I also couldn't stay home with my kids all the time as much as I love them. And you got to figure out the balance of how everything can work together and, and make for a rich life. But sometimes that takes courage because sometimes, as Scott mentioned, it's, it's saying no to things. Sometimes it means saying no to things which everybody in the world would say, boy, you should say yes to because that's an amazing title or that's a little bit more money or that's, you know, wartime on the beach, but you got to really be honest with yourself. And sometimes the things you accept are not the things that most people would say, that's a smart career decision. That's well put. I mean, I agree with both of you a lot, which is that, you know, you have to know your mission and and, and push things out that don't fit and keep things in that do. And I think that um, to some degree, medicine has changed a little bit over the last 20, 30 years. And it's, it, it, and some of the joy is robbed uh, from it. I always joke that, you know, one more, one more 
goddamn mandatory module I have to train in. I mean, come on, every th- I mean, it's privacy training, safety tra- every three months I'm getting another one, and I have to click through all those things. And I'm like, you know, the people who make this just they, they have no net value to society. No, I, I get very harsh sometimes. Um, but I, I think that's part of the reason that it's I mean can be deeply unpleasant. I also think that some of it has to do with the other theme we talked about, which is that the expectations of people going into the field have shifted also a little bit. And maybe, you know, I'm of that generation that's to blame, a generation where where work always is supposed to end when you leave work. You're never supposed to have to stay late. Um, you never have to. You know, I, I tell people that the blessing and curse of this job is people actually need you. So that means that, you know what, you're going to miss dinner sometimes with somebody you care about. You're going to miss something that you should have been there for because somebody is really sick. Um and, and that's the blessing of the job as well. It's not the curse. It's the blessing means that you, what you're doing matters and that someday somebody's going to walk in at 530 and you are not going to be able to go home at 540. You're going to be able to go home at 830 when you get them to the unit or something like that or you get them to the wards. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I often talk to people and I hear, you know, there's always, I always joke. I mean, especially in academics, I feel like yeah, everyone's always unhappy. No one's, no one's ever paid enough. Everyone's always working too much and they're never getting their grants and everyone, and everyone's unhappy and, and everyone has different reasons why. But I mean, you know, wh- one of the realities is, is that, um, you know, uh, and then I also think about my parents' generation, my father's generation. It was a di- just a different, you know, work was supposed to be hard. And, and if you got a, if you got a good job, that's like as that's the peak of what you'd expect, and so I think maybe our expectations have shifted from, from and and maybe become too narcissistic and less about uh, selflessness. Well, it's interesting. I really what you said is exactly what I've said many times to myself and to others is that our job matters, and that's the good part and the tough part. It's tough because when you're wrong, it actually matters and hurts people, and the great part is I never wonder what I've done with my life. You know, um, I'm never going to get done and say, boy, I wasted my time. You know, I did something that mattered to people. I did something that mattered to others. And that's really protective. So I do think that means sometimes you've got to do extra, like you said, and sometimes it just works out. It also helps at times to realize you do have to also take care of yourself. And that's that balance part, right? Like Adam and I were talking how we both exercise regularly, even when we're crazy busy, because it helps us to maintain our mental state. But we do invest in our jobs to realize this matters. And that's good. It does take work, though, right? You got to set up, you know, the home life. Um, you know, my wife and I had schedules for 12 years, which were mirror images of each mm-hmm. other. So, you know, if a kid got sick, nobody had to miss clinic. You right. know, we, yeah, you had to run home at noon. Um, you know, we've had to set up lives where we live close to work and close to school to make things easy. Um Fortunately, it's easier to do that in Chicago, where real estate isn't, you know, billions of dollars. I hate um, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but I agree. You sort of feel like, uh, you know, I check the career satisfaction box um, every day. Uh, and it's, it's, it's to not because we can't get through a, a, a podcast in 2020 without talking about COVID. Um, I found it sort of interesting during this period where, you know, some people might see being a doctor as like the worst possible thing you could do during this period. And I think we've had some medical students who actually, I think, are kind of reconsidering what they're doing. But on the other hand, you know, God, we've been lucky to get to go to work every day and to see colleagues and patients every day. And I actually see some of my patients who, you know, 
decamped to um, you know rural areas during this, coming back and seeping, and and they're more thankful for my service than they've ever been before, which I think is, is telling. Well, I know you have to run, but it reminds me of that essay. I think it came out in like the 1980s in New England Journal, Facing Our Mistakes by David Hilfiker. Oh, um, I remember that. Yes. And, you know, I think he was just a family practice doc who had practiced for many years. And along the way, you know, to Scott's point that our mistakes matter, um, you know, he made mistakes. And I think one of the most vivid mistakes he made was there was a pregnant couple and um, he, he thought that the, the, that the, the baby was a, that the, the, the baby had died in utero and he set up a, a appointment to abort the child, um, and the parents were devastated that the baby died. And then as he was aborting the child, he realized that the baby had not died. And he had made a mistake. He didn't do the extra confirmatory ultrasound. And this was, I think, one of the first essays in the New England Journal where a doctor would admit, you know, just in brutal honesty, what that does to have made such a mistake. And then the other book, you know, I'm reminded of his Marsha's book, Do No Harm, the neurosurgeon who's made mistakes. And and I talked to my friend who's a neurosurgeon and he said, you know, he points out that, you know, when neurosurgeons make mistakes, people are dead like in the instant that you make the mistake. Uh, and you can get them out and get them to the ICU, but you know they're fundamentally brain dead. Um, and And I think that the fact that not much, I mean, thankfully, you know, a lot of what we do doesn't come with that risk, but some of what we do does come with those risks of just sort of catastrophic errors. And I think um, it is the blessing and the curse because it, it means that when you really take it seriously, I think you um, ha I think you have to be the hardest person on yourself. Um, you know, I sometimes some people ask me like, oh, can you give me feedback? And I was like, the only feedback I can give you is that like when, when you think about what you did with the patient, if you don't agonize over, I don't want to tell you, I mean, I had a case in the last year that it was something we all thought, my, my team and every other team thought it was something. And then on autopsy, we learned it was something that we had not thought and we missed it all. And, and I think about all the ways I, like, could I have ever detected that mistake? And maybe 99 out of 100 times, I don't think I could have averted it. But um, I think the process of being a doctor is not that you're always going to get those things right, but that when those things happen, you're going to take like eight hours or 10 hours, or maybe, maybe in my case, a lot long, you know, you take a long chunk of your life thinking about that on walks and car rides and it, it sticks with you. And I think it makes you better in some way. I would say when you care, you actually never forget those. Yeah. Right. And you'll never forget. And we've Adam and I, I know have both had cases that we will never forget. Um, and that's a little bit the cost. On the other hand, it, re it reminds you that life is an amazing thing. And what we have is a sacred opportunity to really serve people. And we need to do the best we can. And there will be mistakes. But on the other hand, we get to do something that most other people will never get to do, which is to really care for lots of other people. So for the students out there, forget your apps and your MBAs. And this not this is not what you need to do. You need to be a doctor. That's the goal. And it's the best thing you can do with a degree. That's my two cents. Uh, thank you both for, for doing this. And the podcast is Symptom to Diagnosis. It's out now. It will teach you how to be a doctor, a real doctor, um, and, 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 and not just one on TV. So thank you both um, for doing well, this. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. That was great. That was great. Thank you. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Vlad Kogan. Dr. Kogan is associate professor at The Ohio State University. He's a political scientist, and he has been tracking schools, which is near and dear to his heart. Dr. Kogan, it's a pleasure to have you back here on the podcast. 
Hey, thanks for having me back after last time. Oh, people really enjoyed your episode. I think it's one of the most downloaded episodes of the podcast. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. So when we were talking last, we were talking about schools. And I guess we're going to be talking about schools again. Um, since we last spoke, how long has it been? Maybe a month, maybe a month and a half. Um, we have not had a whole lot of progress on schools. I wonder if you might say where we were then and where are we now? Gosh, that's a good question. So I think where we were, this is probably two months ago, is uh, most most kids were not in school, certainly not full time. Um, and there was definitely um, differences, right? So urban districts um, tend to be less likely to be in school compared to suburban districts. Um, and although I think we have seen somewhat of an increase um, in the number of schools, school districts brings kids back at least part time, um, really, I think if you look nationally, if you look at like the largest districts in the country, only about half of them have any sort of in-person education. And I think especially in recent weeks, as the rates have gone up, we've also seen cutbacks. So here in Ohio, we've had a number of districts that went from all online to blended for a couple of weeks and are now going back to online just because of the, the explosion of case counts in their, in their home jurisdictions. Wow, this is tough. And I saw somebody talk about New York City where they are still being very firm that they're going to cancel school if case counts go above, I think, 3%. But they have become much more lenient when it comes to dining, and they're going to be more permissive on allowing dining to continue, even if cases surpass. I think the pre-specified was 2% there. Just goes yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. yeah, and that's the crazy thing. So, you know, here, I, you know, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, as you mentioned. Um, our school district has been all online since the beginning of the year. Our, you know, our restaurants are open, but... Football and basketball practice is still happening in school. So it's crazy that you know, kids, it's too dangerous for kids to learn. It's not too dangerous for them to come uh, play sports. Now, that, that baffles me. What is, the, what, is the, what is the explanation for this? Why, why are those things being prioritized? Well, so I think the, the, um, the stated reason is that, yeah. you know, that, that they, can, they can, it's outdoors and they can maintain social distancing more easily. I think a big part of it is, um, coaches get a pretty significant salary boost. I and see. so there is kind of an economic interest as well in the same way that I think there, there isn't those incentives in place for, for restarting in-person learning. I see. Because a lot of people who are teachers who are, should be in-person are still collecting their salaries. Is that right? I, I believe they all are, yeah. yeah. I mean, at least in Ohio, yeah. Because I mean, I, I think they're all teaching at least partly through uh, doing something online. I yeah. see. Yeah. Now... One of the things that got me in a bit of trouble recently was, I'll, I'll blame you because you were whispering in my ear. No, no, I'll blame you because you, you pointed me to the literature. Um, the role of teachers unions. Um, it's so interesting because progressives are tend to be pro-union people. Lib uh, Democrats tend to be pro-union. Um, except not all unions. They are quick to throw the police union right under the bus because the police union, it's evidently clear... At a number of junctures, they will protect their own constituents, police officers, um, which is good. I mean, that's what they ought to do. But it appears at times they protect their own constituents at the expense of society, at the expense of reform, at the expense of sensible reforms that would make them maybe less likely to escalate, to engage in violence, or less likely to indiscriminately and inappropriately apply the escalations. And so I think liberals can recognize that. We can say that, oh, wow, police unions don't always work in the public's best interest. But when it comes to teachers unions, that is a, that is a concept that is off limits, you know, that you can't push on teachers unions and suggest that possibly, to some degree, the teachers unions reflect 
the desires and interests of teachers, even if it occurs at the expense of students. Um, You're somebody who's looked at this union question. When do teachers unions empower us and when do they potentially get in the way of, of reasonable reforms? Yeah, so that's a good question. This is, I think, something that we talked about last time. So I guess my answer is going to be kind of similar to my answer last time, which is, you know, are, they, are the interests of the adults and the kids aligned? And yeah. I think often they are. So there is some really interesting work on education funding reforms. Um, so in the 1980s, there was a number of states that uh, the state stepped in and increased state funding for education to address um, inadequacy. And what you saw is in states that had strong teachers unions, that money was spent in the classrooms. In states that didn't have strong teachers unions, uh, school districts took the state money and then just cut their own taxes and gave their taxpayers a break. I right? see. So I think in that case, strong unions, like their interests were aligned with the interests of the kids. Uh, but that's not always the case, right? And so, you know, let me give you one example. This is something I've been reading a lot about um, interest, you know, recently for a project I'm working on, um, which is school desegregation. So this is, I think there's kind of an interesting story here. Um, so in the 1800s, there was a number of cities in the north that had segregated schools. And there was efforts to try to desegregate them. So, for example, in Indianapolis, um, in 1897, there was a black state legislator who said, no, let's desegregate the schools in Indianapolis. And surprisingly, uh, a lot of the pushback came from African-American teachers because when schools were segregated, um, the schools attended by black students tended to employ black teachers. And they said, what's going to happen to our jobs? Uh, And I think it's interesting. In the 1950s, you had very much the same uh, same conversations. There was a... Uh, African-American sociologist named Oliver Cox, who in 1951 basically said, you know, desegregation is going to be good for kids, but it could dramatically hurt teachers because teaching is a, you know, a well-paying middle-class job. And he turned out to be right when we desegregated the schools uh, disproportionately African-American teachers. teachers. Really? Exactly. Exactly. Um, And so I think nobody would would look back now and say, gosh, we, we should have stayed with segregated schools to protect jobs for black teachers, obviously people would look back and say, we should have done it better um, so that the employment effects didn't disproportionately affect minorities. But I think that's, I think, you know, perfect example would maybe the interests of the, the kids and the teachers are not aligned, right? Uh, and so, again, I think it really depends on the issue. And I, and I worry that in the case of COVID, this is one of those issues where there really is, is that disconnect. A misalignment of, of interests. That's an interesting example. I think I listened once to a, a Malcolm Gladwell revisionist history where he talked about just this issue, which was that, um, and I think he, he he came at it a little bit from the point of view of the kids that maybe not all minority kids, but at least some black kids, um, one of the major forces in their life for good was having had a black teacher that really made a difference in their life. Um, and that to some degree, integrating schools actually perhaps on the margin, hurt them a little bit um, if because it meant fewer black teacher role models. Um, uh, I think he talked about it, but it's been a while since I listened to that podcast. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I've listened to that podcast as well. So I think we have, again, yeah, uh, we have really good evidence. Um, so there's an uh, economics professor at UC Berkeley uh, who has a great book called School Desegregation, Schools Desegregation Works, I believe that's the title. And he shows that there was really substantial benefits, uh, primarily because when schools were desegregated, um, uh, there was a massive increase in funding for, for schools that certainly were underfunded. But I think, you know, I think the, the, the flip side is, is also true that, you know, that minority students tend to do better when they have minority teachers for a variety of reasons. So I don't think it's one or the other, right? And I think I that's, that's, the, that's the challenge. I think that's also the challenge with, with the school issue, right? It's not, it's not throw all the teachers under the bus, have them die and reopen the schools versus everybody stays home. It's a question of how do we do it right so that the interests of kids are served but again, we, we think carefully about, about some of these downstream consequences. And again, we treat teachers fairly. 
Now, since we last spoke, and since we even planned on this discussion, I think two massive events occurred that I wonder how they shape your thinking on this. And I guess, I mean, you know, listeners can go back, but actually listeners are probably familiar with what, you know, we talked about last time. I think we talked about the trade-offs. What are the trade-offs to kids? What are the trade-offs to adults um, by opening versus not reopening schools in person? Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about those trade-offs. But um, one of the things that has changed in the interim was that we have the results of the presidential election, at least the results according to some people who believe the results, but maybe not everybody. Um, and that's Joe Biden won the election. That's a big, big change. Um, and then the other thing that happened is we have some very preliminary press release results that a vaccine candidate by Pfizer um, may be promising, uh, that the interim results showed 90% efficacy. Uh, both of these two events have repercussions on schools. Um, and I, well, I guess the third event is that cases are climbing. Um, and cases appear to be climbing rapidly in, in sort of the heartlands of America. I think when cases are climbing, the case to make for reopening schools is more of an uphill battle, just practically an uphill battle because people are going to be much more reluctant. Even if um, the absolute benefit calculus still favors reopening, it probably certainly did favor reopening when cases were low, um, but people weren't be persuaded. And so when cases are going up, they'll be even harder to persuade. Um, the vaccine for many people changes their calculus a little bit because now they say, oh, doesn't hurt to wait a little bit longer. We might as well just wait a little bit longer. Um, the new president doesn't hurt the cal- uh, pushes it out a little bit further um, because I think it means that people think that Biden will pass a stimulus that will allow us to r- put a HEPA filter in every uh, school building or something like that. You know, some ventilatory remedy. Um, but the data has all you know sort of similar. The data that came out of Europe suggesting that actually teachers, compared to other people, um, they didn't really have a disproportionate risk of of infection to themselves which is sort of as kind of good real-world data you can get, which that it didn't appear to be. I mean, theoretically, of course, when you go contact people, your risk is higher, um, but it didn't appear to be much worse. Uh, the data for kids is that, you know, at the same level of inoculation, the kid is less likely to get it than the adult, I think. Um, although recent studies are showing that over time, you know, may, it all maybe washes out at the end. Um, but I guess my question for you is, new president, new vaccine, does that change some of your thinking on this issue or, or, or does it certainly change the, the landscape on this issue? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And there's a lot to unpack there. So I remember, you know, last time we had a conversation and we made predictions and you said, everybody's going to look you know, to the South, nothing's going to happen and everybody's going to be up in schools. And I said, there's going to be, you know, these freak stories that are unrepresentative. Uh-huh. Everybody's going to point to them and make a case for not reopening schools. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yeah, so I, you know, I think, I guess, I guess I'll, I'll take all of those in turn. Um, I think you're exactly right that I think the, the at least the rhetorical calculus, I think, has changed because now there really is, you know, a, a clear benefit of minimizing infections now, knowing that there's a vaccine coming, right? That it wasn't like before where we had no idea how long this was going to last. Um, and so I think that makes it, you know, that makes it harder to make the case that, you know, you know that, that the trade-off of putting people at risk now is worth it. If, right. You know, just a few months away. Right. You know, we can get them inoculated, uh, which I think is an important case for for making an important um, argument for making the case that teachers should really be also at the front of the line. Right. In right. terms of how so. to prioritize right. the vaccine. Right. Uh, so, I, and I think that yes, and I, the, the flip side is also that the case counts have gone up, so now the risk of reopening is much higher. So I think if you combine those two, you know, it's it's become a much much you know harder argument to make, and especially I think in places that haven't opened yet, or were the most reluctant to open, it's hard to imagine they would consider reopening now, but that those things are true when they weren't willing to do so a month ago. So I think that's one. 
you know, two, um, you know, the, the, the presidential election, hopefully, hopefully uh, Donald Trump will actually leave office uh, when he's supposed to, but we'll see. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to see what Congress ultimately passes. Um, you know, the Senate, I think, has been reluctant to provide funding for local governments. And I think it's interesting, you know, it's going to be interesting to watch to see, do they attach, um, do they attach conditions? Do they say, school districts, if you want this money, you're going to have to do more to reopen? Um, if there are conditions attached, I could imagine that would really also change the calculus of local school districts. Again, we haven't seen any any details yet. Um, you know, what the, what the Biden administration itself does, I think, again, it's hard to know. Um, again, I think Congress is going to be mostly involved in writing legislation. Um, I think the Biden administration is going to matter a lot more in the spring when it comes to testing of whether we have the annual tests and and whether we can actually measure the harms that have been done over the past year. And I think, you know, as, as an education policy person, you know, getting data to quantify who's fallen behind by how much is going to be so, so important to target future policy to the right places. Um, and I worry that that the tests are going to be, you know, not going to happen happen with a with a you know with a democratic um secretary of education mm -hmm. so i guess i guess let me touch on the last point about yeah. the evidence yeah so you know again i've been a vocal supporter of, of opening schools just like you um but i have to say you know gosh, the evidence is just not like not as bulletproof as i wish it were right i mean there's so much uncertainty um uh, and i think that you know you can read all this evidence in, in different ways and you know i, I worry that that's those of us who advocate for opening schools that, that we set up, you know, straw man argument, right? In, you know, in the earliest people were saying, well, ki kids can't get sick. So then all you need to do is like, here's a case of a kid getting sick and you're wrong. Right. Or oh, kids don't spread it. And here's here's a Polish daycare and it is spread it. Therefore, you're wrong. But so I hate I think that study. Really... Okay, I hate that study. Right, right, right. Okay, But you have the Utah case. Yeah, so, yes, I'm just, yes, so yes. I think we have to be careful about, you know, yeah, I think we have to be careful about how we frame these arguments. And you know, I, I think if for my money, the most compelling evidence I've seen is, is a Swedish paper that compares yes. um, secondary teachers to yes. primary teachers and, yeah. and kind of takes advantage of this grade threshold where above above a certain grade, they were all online. And, you know, I think we have to be we have to be honest and say they did find a higher risk for teachers who were teaching in person. Right. It was about the odds ratio was like two and the family members had a higher risk. Um, and, and, you know, how you aggregate the other occupations, whether it was, you know, relative to the, the mean of the population, I think, again, that's open to debate, but uh, the teachers that were teaching all online certainly had a lower risk. So I think we have to acknowledge that there is some risk for teachers. And, you know, I think we as a society really have to work hard to mitigate those risks uh, and, and make teachers feel comfortable. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't think it would be fair to say, you know, you know, sacrifice yourself for the greater good, right? I, I mean, I agree. I, I think you're 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 making a, good, a, fair, a totally fair point. Um, I, I know with that study though that the odds ratio is you know two, not twenty two, right? You know, so sure. it's, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's also you know taken with a grain of salt that um, I don't know. I mean, it, it is all, it is a challenging policy question, and I I'll be the first to admit it too. Um, which is that there's a risk benefit. It's very complicated. It's almost semi-quantitative because it's almost um, too big to quantify fully because there's too much, the uncertainty intervals are too large. Um, but and I, I guess I still think it was important to, to be where we were in the conversation because it provides people, I guess, some intellectual space to explore it on this way. And clearly, the U.S. is such an outlier compared to everywhere else on Earth. I mean, I talked to everyone I know in Western Europe, and they have just prior – their priorities are all the opposite way. Even, you know, as we saw, 
UK re-enters uh, lockdown. France re-enters a uh, state of lockdown. But schools are not being halted. I mean, those countries just fundamentally have a different commitment to their schools, I guess, in times of peace and times of war. Um, their investment in schools and kids and the next generation is just fundamentally different than than this. But I think you're right um, that, you know, there, there's always got to, there's got to be an increased risk of infection by going out of your house when not, when the alternative is not going out of your house. The question is, is it offset by the harm that's being done to the kids? I wonder if you might talk a little bit about something you brought to my attention, something I hadn't thought enough about, which is that even though much of the discussion has been about young kids, K, one, two, three, you know, the grades where we think, you know, it's really important for these kids to socialize, to go meet, to educate themselves, um, that high school is something that's super important. It's such a vulnerable time in people's lives and, you know, um, things could change on a dime. And and we're finding some signals in high school kids that are concerning. Um, what, what What's going on with these high school kids? Yeah, so it's a great question. So, yeah, so I think just, just for context, right, the argument that people have made for reopening elementary schools, but not high schools is yes. that, you know, you know, younger kids are at lower risk, both of, of severe, severe COVID, but also spreading it. And I think the other argument is, well, high school kids have the skills to, to do online learning on their own, much more so than, than lower grades. Uh, so the, you know, the thing I worry about is um, high school kids are also much more likely to be left alone with minimal supervision. So maybe they're not going to log in because the parent isn't there. Yes. And maybe they're going to go out and, and hang out with friends and do and get into trouble. So we don't have much data on that. Although, again, you know, just anecdotally, we have seen, I think, big increases, at least in some cities of, of juvenile gun violence. Um, and I think it's, it's difficult to know how the two are linked. But, but I worry that this is part of part of the part of that mechanism, you know, kids left alone are going to get into trouble. I think the other is we've seen big impacts on achievement. Um, so there's been now a, a variety of data. Um, Los Angeles Unified released some data on high school students uh, in the Bay Area. There were some school districts where you are released data in Oregon. There are some districts that released data in Texas, and they all show just a huge increase in high school students getting failing grades. Mm. Um, because because of online learning, mm -hmm. and you know I, I think it's concerning because again uh, there's a lot at stake for high school kids right uh, making them stay an extra year is going to I think lead to pretty big dropout rates in many states you have to, you can be you can drop out when you're 16 so many of these kids are over that age so I worry about a big increase in dropouts and even if there isn't so um, many universities have have dumped standardized tests this year because it's so hard to take the SAT or the ACT. So they're really going to be going based on high school GPA, right? That's going to be the only metric available. And so that's going to really put these kids at a huge disadvantage for their, for their higher education um, admissions um, if, if, yeah, if, if, they're, if they're failing a bunch of classes um, for the kids that are struggling with online learning. So I think, I think we have to really worry about high school students um, as much as we worry about the elementary school students. I think the, you know, the, the learning costs are probably higher for younger grades. We know kids learn a lot more. I worry about some of these other broader social effects. I think they're much larger for the, for the high school age students. I see. That's an excellent point. I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about what's going to be needed in this wish list, you know, for the, for the next year. So let's just, let's just talk through what might happen. Let's say between now and the inauguration, I worry not a lot is going to happen. Um, you know, we see schools punting left, right, and center. They already said uh, January is when we're going to reopen. Uh, well, we'll see. You know, and so they're they're punting this ball forward. Um, that to me is not good. Um, and and I should just mention to you that since we last spoke, I got Kerry Cruz Bueno 
um, to talk about her paper and we recorded it. And so that'll be coming out soon. Thanks for that tip. That's a great paper. Um, really interesting look at whether or not online education is a substitute for um, in person. And, and it appears that it is not. Um, uh, and even though it's hard to kind of tease that out because there are a bunch of reasons why people might go online that uh, because they're not doing well in school, for instance, but but she did a number of things to try to get around that. And um, um, but one of the things in her paper was that, um, you know, she concedes that the kids who did online who went back. And her data said it appeared that they were able to get kind of back to where they were. Um, you know, it's a very select group of people who go one, then who go person online and back. Um, but that said, you know, she said that some people are taking it as a note of optimism. Um, let's say between now and the inauguration, we really don't have widespread return to school. Cases will do what they whatever they're destined to do, um, which I think is to peak and then to come down again, hopefully, God willing. Um, and the Biden takes over. What what is the sort of strategy he has? I mean, that he should be thinking about. I mean, I guess the things I wanted to talk about are like immediately, like how do we get the schools reopened ASAP? I think that's one concern. And then also, what are the kinds of policies he should be thinking about for remediating this 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 gap? Um, getting all these kids back on track. How are they going to track down these kids who have dropped out and are are gone? And and you know, what what kind of efforts would you like to see to to take advantage of this as an opportunity to try to fix some of the damage? Yeah, so it's a great question. So let me take that first first question um, first about, about the challenges. Um, and so I guess I think about less about what, what should the Biden administration, the administration do and more about what are these broader global challenges. And you know, I thought about this a lot in the last couple of weeks. And so here's what I see, I think, where the big problems lie. Uh, I think many school districts really don't have a workable plan to reopen. Um, and, and I said this because over the summer, really all the focus, right, was on droplet transmission. That's what everybody was talking about. Yes. So all the school districts bought these Ghostbuster shooting guns to sanitize everything. Yeah. But but they, you know, now that everybody's talking about airborne transmission, I don't think that you know the districts have the, you know, have the the tools in place. Right. We right. built we built we built schools to be like fortresses to keep you know dangerous people out. So you can't really open windows. And and I think providing like a plan, just a blueprint of here's how you do ventilation to reduce some of these risks. And here's some money to buy the equipment that you need is, is for me, like something we should be doing, we should have been doing like a month ago, right? That's ASAP, mm -hmm. uh, needs to be done soon. So the second thing I think about is, um, you know, is hybrid learning. So it seems unlikely that many places are gonna go from completely online to all students coming in in person uh, because it's, it's just almost impossible to have all the kids in one place socially distanced. And so, if we are, you know, in places where kids are going to have in-person learning, if it's going to be primarily a hybrid model, how do we make that work, right? Um, you know, I worry that that hybrid might be worse than the completely online because you have, you know, a teacher teaching students in person and kids trying to watch the video from home. That's not going to be very good, right? You're, you probably have much, much better luck doing completely online and, and being able to be engaged, engaging. Um, and so, you know, Unless there's, unless we see fundamental changes in staffing, um, I, I just I can't imagine hybrid learning being all that much different, and much much better than than virtual learning. To be, and to be clear, what I mean hybrid is like kids coming in two days a week in person, see, two right. days a week online. Um, and so we really have to like fundamentally rethink how we staff courses. You know, student-teacher ratios. Can you have one amazing teacher teaching all the second graders in a district twice a week versus? another teacher doing two days a week. I think something like that is really the only way that you make hybrid learning remotely better than what's I going see. on now. Yeah. 
Uh, and then I guess the last challenge for me is, you know, we focus a lot on getting schools reopened and we talk about teachers unions, which I think, you know, are, are a big impediment here. But I think parents are a big part of the story, right? So New York opened, it's got 1.1 million students, um, only 283,000 showed up, right? So I think there's big reluctance amongst parents, especially, you know, uh, minority parents and low-income parents because of some of the messaging. And I think, I think that the school employee interests have fanned some of those flames intentionally. Yes, right. But, but uh, reopening schools doesn't help if kids don't show up. And so there has to be like a messaging campaign to parents, you know, telling them that like this is the right thing to do for your kids, um, telling them that we can do it safely, and then telling them also like you know you gotta gotta put your kids first uh, because I think that's going to be a big big source of resistance uh, in many communities. And and so um, I don't have a good strategy in mind aside from just acknowledging I think that's going to be a huge barrier, um, and I think it's something that we should be thinking about proactively. So yeah, I guess your second question was about remediation. Yes. Um, and and so I, I think there's different strategies for different cohorts of students. So for younger students, uh, we know that, you know, we know that they're going to probably lose out on the most, but we also have the most time to make that up. Uh, I really worry about getting the high school students. So, you know, I had a, I had a conversation here recently in Ohio with some, some advocacy groups and they're saying, let's just add a 13th year to high school. Hmm. And I think, you know, that might help like the, the current third graders. Yes. It's not going to help the kids that drop out now in high school. Right. right? Uh, so what, what do we do with the oldest kids now? And, you know, I, I think it has to start now. We can't wait for schools to reopen. It has to start with just really intensive tutoring, like one-on-one -on -one services, um, you know, in the same way that, that, you know, special ed students and, and English learners have special needs uh, that are, that are very labor intensive. I think, I think older students now, especially the older students who are struggling really need support now, whether it's in person, whether it's online. But I, you know, it's it's going to be too late if we wait for schools to reopen because yeah, once once they drop out, once they drop out of the system, it's going to be so hard to even track them down and get them back. Uh, and so I think that should be our immediate focus. But in the long run, we should be focusing on the younger students and thinking about again, you know, extending the school year, extending the school day, and all that good stuff that we talked mm -hmm. about last time. Now that's I guess. So interesting to me. I mean, I think one of the things you're pitting on is the messaging challenge. And um, boy, I guess it, 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 it's, it's drawing a parallel between something somebody was kind of probing me on online, which was, you know, this person was asking the question, like, does every doctor have a duty to show themselves getting vaccinated to prove that the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine is safe? And I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess my first question, of course, before one can have a duty to do something, I guess my first question is, is it actually even effective? And so my question is like, okay, if people saw a lot of doctors getting the vaccine, is that in fact the case that the doctors would, or that anyone would be more likely to want to do it? Um, and then actually the more I thought about it, I was like, well, actually, to be honest with you, the, the supply will be restricted to come out. So the first thing is all the people who want it, you know, should get it. That's probably going to keep us going until maybe 2022. Who knows how long it'll take for just them to make enough for the people who want it. Then we can talk about the people who don't want it. And the people who don't want it are divided into those who have already had COVID <laughs> and recovered or, or worse, um, and, or the people who don't want it and who have not had it. That's the, that's the problematic demographic. But I was like, we can come to that when we get there. But as I was thinking more about like doctors modeling behavior, I was looking at my Twitter feed and, um, you know, some doctor was cursing out the, uh, Don Jr. and Eric, uh, the, the geniuses of the, of the Trump life, <laughs> the, the heirs to the throne, you know, the Don Jr. They had some joke about John Jr. And, and somebody else was talking about their nepotism and the conflict of interest in the family. Someone was talking about, I don't know, Trump golfing some, something like this. And, 
And I guess I was thinking about it more, and I was thinking, I don't know, if someone's Twitter feed, they're a doctor, and if their Twitter feed is just a blend of, like, hating on Trump, that's like 10, 20%, um, vaccines are good for you, 20%, um, masks, wear masks, 20%. I guess I, I, what my thought was, like, I wonder, are they actually reaching somebody who, these 71 million people who didn't vote for, you know, the same direction, are they reaching that person? Are they potentially, like, making this a package deal? Like, you know, you want a, you want a mask? You want a vaccine? Um, you got to be against school opening and you got to be for, uh, 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 Roe v. Wade. Is this a, you know, like, are we making these like weird? And it's like, you know, at the end of the day, like we, we don't want to bundle this. It's not a Comcast bundle. We want all of these things separate. So maybe more people buy into vaccine, more people buy into reopening schools. And so I guess I worry about like social media bundling things in a way they shouldn't be bundled. And the reason I think of this is like, you're pointing about the message, which is that places that are high concentration of liberals didn't vote for Trump. There's this uh, this current of reluctance to send their kids to school. And then I see also see on Twitter places that did vote for Trump, uh, low, you know, um, uh, uh, parents much more willing to tolerate those risks in their kids. And so I guess I don't know if there's a question here or if it's just sort of a, a political science challenge, which yeah. is um, how do you disentangle issues that like, like the Democratic Party platform is actually, it's like from first principles, you would never arrive there. It's an odd, odd hodgepodge of issues. Um, is is there sometimes a need to disentangle this pl- from political parties? Um, so I guess that's a political science question. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, so I mean, I think the political science answer is, you know, I think we got to be careful from um, extrapolating from Twitter to, huh, okay. to non-Twitter population. Okay. Um, I think one thing we know is that although political elites are really polarized, the average voter really is not. Average voter has like a crazy hodgepodge of positions where they're liberal on some issues and a super conservative at others. And so I think partisanship has been really important in the school reopening decisions. Yes. Uh, partly because of that elite level phenomenon. And I think partly because a lot of the people who, who really, you know, vocal don't have kids. I think for people that actually have kids, I suspect, the, you know, this is mostly not partisanship that's driving their decisions. I do think there is kind of some rational self-interest. I see. And so, you know, just talking to parents and, and you know, observing school board meetings on Facebook where people comment. Yes. I, I've heard two kinds of arguments that I think we can address without, you know, sidestepping just the, the partisan issue. So yeah, yeah. I think there's still many people who are very concerned about the impact on their kids, right? Who say, do you want my kids to die? And just don't have a good grasp of the relative risks. Yes. And right, so I think, right. I think the science community really needs to do a better job just communicating what the relative risks are for young kids how they compare it to all sorts of other stuff we do every day. Right. And I think that message hasn't gone through. So I think the second issue, which is more difficult, is uh, parents being concerned about themselves. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, when we talked last time, I, I, you know, I pointed out that most of the places where schools are closed are uh, have lower income families, have more families of color. And I argued that, you know, that was really concerning. That was a case for opening schools. And what I've seen in recent weeks is that that kind of, talking point get turned around and so many of the folks fighting school openings kind of use that same argument and say well these are places where we have uh, you know more minority parents and we know that covid has big uh, racial disparities mm-hmm. in terms of its impact especially in that 30 to 40 age group right that's where we see huge racial differences mm-hmm. and so if you open those schools you're going to put minority parents at greater risk mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and so you know those schools should stay closed 
longer compared to suburban schools where we don't have those average populations. Right. And gosh, yeah, I just don't know what to say to that. I mean, you know, I just don't know. Aside from telling parents that you have to accept some risk so that your kids can have a better life. I just don't know. I, I just don't know what a good response is to that. I don't know. What do, what do you think? Yeah, I find that tricky because I guess, I guess it is not clear to me that the reason why the 30 to 40 year old minority people are disproportionately being harmed from COVID is that their bodies are more susceptible to the virus, right? It's that I don't think that's the explanation. I think it has to do with the fact that society has discriminated against them in very insidious ways. Um, they're more likely to have jobs where they have to keep working and wake up early and go and expose themselves to the virus and they have less resources at home and they maybe have, you know, different diets and different exercise habits and, you know, all the ways in which social determinants of health take a toll on somebody. And so I think my, my, my gut reaction, although I don't have like a, you know, I, like you said, there's a lot of, amb- a lot of uncertainty here. My gut reaction is that by by trying to shield them from the virus by depriving their kids of an education, I think we'll end up harming the kids and we're not, won't protect them that much. Um, but like, you know, I, I don't think that there are going to be disproportionately likely, like the delta of their bad outcomes is not going to get a lot worse when their kids go into school. But again, you know, I have to be the first to admit that, like, do I have, as you say, ironclad evidence that that is the case? No, I don't. Um, it's just, I guess, the way in which I would have interpreted that data. But I think the way it can be, as you say, the people who are spinning it, they're spinning it in a certain way, which is that, um, they're spinning it to mean that these people are more vulnerable and we have to do more to shield them. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, so that's what I would say to that. But I guess, I mean, it is a, it is a, a thorny question. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess I, to be clear, I wasn't saying yeah, endorsing no, that argument. Right. I think you're right. Right. We know, we know, uh, people of color are disproportionately likely to have essential jobs that, that they couldn't stay home. But I think we also know that that, you know, they, they likely have, you know, heart disease and diabetes and comorbidities that do increase the risks. Yes. Um, so I, and I think, I think the question is if we have parents who are scared for their own health to send their kids to school, right? What, what is the strategy for helping them overcome that concern? Yes, right. 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 Is, is it about putting in more safeguards? Is it about having rapid testing so we can tell them, Hey, we're going to catch, we can catch outbreaks early. Um, I just don't know what it will take uh, to get them to feel comfortable. And I think for me, once schools do reopen, I think that's going to be the big hurdle is, is parents feeling comfortable enough. So I think places like Texas, um, I think are trying something a little bit different from what I read in the paper, you know, in the news that, if, if students are, are failing, they're actually going to make them come to school in person. Um, I can imagine a lot of pushback to that, right? That we're going to tell you that your kid has to come and put you at risk. I don't think that's going to be like a winning strategy. I see. I see um, what you're saying, right? Yeah. It, I mean, I think what you're alluding to is a challenge that I see now. There's a theme emerging here, which is like the mask adherence, these vaccine reluctance who someday may cause us a problem, but at least for now, they're on the back burner. Um, school reluctance which is messaging. And I guess, I mean, you know, there's a new COVID task force and somebody tossed out this idea on Twitter that there needs to be like a separate task force with psychologists, behavioral scientists, um, I don't want to say propagandists, but like people who study the art of persuasion to think um, about messaging. And, and, and I guess my only thoughts would be like, I think that 
you know, everyone always says that like leadership is setting an example, but maybe for some of these issues that the politician should be one step removed from the messaging, that the messaging should be a neutral party. I mean, they can easily become politicized like, uh, like Fauci has become. Um, but, but maybe if it's directly, if it's directly the person you either voted for or voted against, maybe that's not the ideal person to be going out there with the message. I don't know. And maybe what it actually takes is like some part of this task force should be tasked with the thought of messaging not just today, but also messaging in a way that you don't look like a hypocrite or fool, right? So that's one of the problems with the schools was that the messaging by some parties was so fear-mongering because they didn't want the school to reopen, um, curiously after Trump said that it should open, uh, that, 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 they, that there's a legacy from that. And it's harder to undo that when we do want it to open. Um, thoughts on that? I mean, maybe we do need some sort of special thoughts on messaging. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And I think, you know, I know you're a big fan of randomized controlled yes, trials. I, I think know, this yeah, is the yeah. place to do it, right? I mean, the Obama administration had like a whole behavioral economics team that would like set out different postcards to get you to pay taxes to see what messaging worked. And I, I see no reason why we can't do that with, with school reopenings to see what kind of messages are more effective. Uh, like what kind of community leaders do you need to be the face of, of, of that messaging? Uh, but I, I think I, I think this is something that we're not thinking about enough. I think everybody is focused on just force the districts to reopen. And I don't think enough people are thinking about the parents and getting the parents on board. And I just hope that's going to be a big part of the conversation in this space. Let me ask you a question about schools, which I've always I don't think I fully understand, which is that um, it really matters where you live a lot in this country, the quality of the school. Um, you know, when I was in Portland, there was somebody who lived in this part of town that I, I don't I don't think I've ever even been to, Dunthorpe. And it was like some like little private set of houses where I think like some of the trailblazers had their home. And they were, and this and this person was saying to me, um, you know, like uh, people buy in this neighborhood because the school system is like exceptionally good, like better than the best private school. Like it's so good. And um and then there are other school systems that are just terrible. I guess um, maybe maybe I just don't know the political history here well enough. But how did the United States end up in a situation where so much of the school authority was at this local municipality level? The state is under no obligation to standardize reimburse you know the dollar per kid at these schools. That you can be one mile here and the greatest school, and one mile there and the worst school. Um, where did this fundamental disconnect come? And 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 then. And then the schools may fuel segregation of the sort because people segregate racially even by moving to these places. Um, so, you know, it's sort of an anti-integration thing. Where does this start? Where does this come from? And what is the way in which this problem should be tackled? I, I love that question because I, yeah, this is something I've been reading a lot about. So let me just give you some of the history yeah. uh, because you know, I think we take it for granted that this is how schools are run and really no other like major democracy runs schools in this way. I mean, they have, I think, many of the same issues, but in terms of just the, the operations. So it's, it's really the fault of the Puritans. So the Puritans in like the 1600s said, we got to make sure that kids can read so they can read the Bible. And they basically put the responsibilities on towns and aldermen and said, hey, you guys have to set up a school. You have to figure out how to pay for it. And you got to teach these kids to read. So, so the Massachusetts model became the model for the rest of the country as other places created their own public education systems. They said, oh, this is what Massachusetts does, local control, local, local boards. Um, and, and so that's where that comes from. So we, did, we have had, I think, historically a big push towards centralization. Like in the 1800s, there was like 200,000 school districts. Now there's about 14,000. So we took a lot of like single schoolhouse districts that there's one room that serves all kids of all ages and really 
consolidated that. Uh, and, and so, so you know, I, I think we I think we've been moving in that direction. In this, in the 1960s and 70s, there was a wave of litigation in states that addressed the funding issue. And so, I think in many places, um, you know, the funding disparities um, are not as as bad as they used to be. A lot of the state funding is very uh, progressive and redistributive. Mm. Now, again, it doesn't work as well everywhere. But yeah. again, in Ohio, our funding formula is, is very redistributive. And so, if you look at my district. You know, we spend probably double what the surrounding, most of the surrounding suburban districts do because we get so much more state funding. Um, but I think, that, you know, so, so we've addressed, I think, that. We've addressed the scale. But there is, you know, there's, there is still, um, again, the challenge of parents. Um, and, and so I guess let me just say two quick things. I, I think we have to be careful about how we measure educational quality. Um, so people look at test scores and they say this school district is, has, is better because the test scores are higher. And it's not obvious how much of the difference in test scores is due to educational quality versus mm. everything else that happens, like poverty. Um, and so isolating educational quality is actually very really difficult. And so a lot of the data leads us astray. And so just like in, in, in health, right, you wouldn't look at a family doctor and compare them to like somebody that works with cancer patients right. and look at their the survival rates for the patient and say, oh, look, the family doctor is a better doctor because yeah. their patients survive. Well, right. they're treating different different patients, right? So I think the same thing is true in education. So I think there, there is a lot of um, challenge in that. I think the other big thing, though, is parents, um, they don't just care about the quality of schools, they care about peers. And so I think a lot of the evidence we see is that parents choose peers, right? And so that's a very difficult challenge to overcome as well. So even if you fix the funding disparities, even if you fix everything else, um, there's just a lot of reluctance to, um, amongst, you know, middle and upper class parents to, to you know, uh, to, to send their kids to schools with lower achieving, more disadvantaged peers because they worry about peer effects, they worry about dis disruptive behaviors. Um, and that's a very difficult challenge to, to, to solve. Um, I that's interesting. And I think, you know, I think, yeah. And let me just give you an example. So you're in San Francisco. So yeah. San Francisco, you know, has tried very hard to integrate the school system. Uh, and so they, they have this very aggressive system of busing. And as a result, San Francisco has one of the highest private school attendance rates in the country because wealthy parents say, I'm not going to mess with this. I'm just going to pull them out and send them to a private school. I see. So, so it's difficult. It's challenging. It's challenging. You know, pushing far enough, but not so far that you just that the parents just leave the school system and, and pull their kids and do something else. This is a fascinating question, actually. The more I think about it, it's quite challenging because, I mean, there, there are few maneuvers that are always off the table. One is... You're never going to win if you tell parents you can't pull your skid, right? That's the non-starter. You've got to always give them that option. Um, that's one. Two, they're going to pull their kid if they feel like that the options are worth the money, the investment, the, the, the benefit of the options. And so anything you do to remedy um, injustice has to not be so um, off-putting to those um, wealthy wealthier parents who have resources and means um, to pull their kids. I, yeah, now the more I think about it, it's quite a challenge. I wonder if you might address something that, you're quite, that your discussion raises in my mind, the death spiral. Um, I worry a little bit that this event will be a death spiral in some places. By that I mean um, there are already people pulling their kids from schools at sort of maybe even record numbers. We, we don't really have a sense, um, but I hear a lot of it. I guess it's anecdotal, but I mean, you, you hear a lot of people pulling their kids from schools because people want to put their kids in schools, especially if they have the option. You know, we, I was joke, especially on Twitter because, uh, you know, all the docs on Twitter are like, oh, my kid's in private school. You know, they always keep coming out of the woodwork to tell me that. Um, but as kids get, you know, and then somebody made the point that the unions are actually killing their own long-term interests because public schools, you lose kids, 
you lose more kids, you'll lose the funding. There'll be less money to hire teachers. There'll be fewer teachers' jobs. There'll be more teachers' jobs in private schools, which may pay less and have less job security. So the union actually is is hastening its own demise by by not competing with private schools and running at the same you know with, at the same time. Um, do you think about is there is there a possibility that that places are entering this kind of death spiral that it's going to be very hard to claw back that public education is going to be um, facing an uphill climb in the future? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, yeah. So that's a great question, and so I, I thought about this a lot as well. And I think I think well, there's a, a couple of dimensions. Uh, you know, looking at the at the at the data on enrollment, it looks like disproportionately uh, some of those enrollment losses have been in kindergarten. So parents mm. are waiting an extra year to send their kids to kindergarten. Mm. Uh, so I think it's going to be an open question whether that's just a, you know a kid delayed or that's a kid pulled. Mm -hmm. And what I worry about is next year, are we going to have two years of kindergartners coming at school at the same time and the logistical challenges that will create. Right? I don't think that's something that school districts have really yes. begun thinking, thinking about yet. Spots are they gonna, yeah. Yeah. And so, so the other side, uh, you know, this is actually, there's a big um, literature on this, in, on the impact of competition on, on public schools. And so a lot of people make the argument that you make in regards to charter schools and private schools that, you know, not only do they cream skim, they take the best students, but um, a lot of the costs are fixed. And so as you lose students, right, your cost per student goes up and it yeah. does create this death spiral. We haven't really seen much evidence of that, I, I have to say. Uh, and, and there's also, but there is also this, I think, complementary, or I guess the opposite effect, which is, I think we do have evidence that when there's greater competition, uh, private schools innovate and they, they actually improve the quality of their teaching. And mm -hmm. so I think it could go either way, right? We could see school districts facing all these financial pressures. We could also see them um, step up and, and, you know, try to win these kids back doing things that they would not otherwise do. So it could be kind of a kick in the butt that, that drives some positive things in the education system. I think it, it's an empirical question. Um, and so we, we got to watch to see what happens. That's, that's, that's well put. That's interesting. Um, I guess I got, I got one big last question for you, but before I say that, I just had to say, uh, it was amusing. It was not amusing to me. It was sobering to me to watch Emily Oster and the response she got on Twitter, especially since our last conversation. Um, a lot of negativity directed her way. Um, because people feel like, uh, her data set was not as ironclad as people would want it to be. Um, you said something that I thought was really telling, which was that, you know, this is somebody who sort of single-handedly is collecting data and a lot of data, you know, with all the caveats of selection bias data and that sort of thing, in a space where no one is really collecting data. Um, and as much as you want to criticize her, you know, you got to at least temper it a little bit. Um, any thoughts on that? That Does it speak to the, the emotions in the room being so hot, the way people responded to her? Yeah, I mean, great question. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm with you, right? I mean, I think it's it's sad. Uh, it's a sad state of a society that we have to rely on Emily Oster to collect this data, right? right? That nobody else is collecting it. Uh, I do think this is a case of, of shooting the messenger. I, I do think these are some organized, entrenched interest groups that uh, again don't want schools to reopen, and so um, yeah, I think I think they're just going after her and her, and her data to, to try to undermine it because it is being used, you know, I think as as a piece of evidence in favor of reopening schools. Yeah, I think there's a similar thing that I uh, – somebody, somebody's going to get some angry letter. But, um, you know, when the Santa Clara County people did their seroprevalence, and, of course, there's some issues with that um, uh, paper. And they fixed a lot of those issues, but maybe there's still some persistent questions. And, and then there's some 
there's some things that I've never really fully understood the criticism where, you know, one of the things they said was like, they recruited patient, um, people from Facebook. So you're going to recruit people who are more likely to have felt sick and have COVID and inflate your um, prevalence estimate. But I also thought that it could have the exact opposite effect because you recruit people who are more worried well worried, 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 worried people who live in Santa Clara County where they're really, really worried and they're on Facebook and like, oh, I better get that because I want to double check. And so you may actually deflate your prevalence. But anyway, I, I was like, oh, I'm so sick of listening to this. But one of the things I wanted to say was like, look, wh- why are, why, why has this task been left to these people? <laughs> this is like, why isn't the CDC mobilized the army to answer this question across the country in, in this very broad way? And we've like left it to like four random professors to do this, which you know, at a time where tensions were really high because emotions were really high there. And of course, you know, they're going to get hung no matter what they find, I think, to be honest, to be hung by somebody. Somebody will want to hang them for that. But I'm like, why is the job up to them? And why is the job to Emily Oster to tell us which schools are open or not? You know, it really needs some some central authority to say that this is such an important question. We have to answer it. But anyway, here's my last question to you because I know our time is running out. Education. Why, you know, I guess when I was a student, you know, this was this was the early 1980s, and this was like suburbs of Cleveland, and then I lived in Pennsylvania for a while, and then I lived in Indiana, Northwest Indiana, um, and even in the course of my own, so I was 100% public education, and um, and even through college, I went to a public college, um, and um, I, I always felt I got a really good education. Um, because like there was, you know, for every, there's always going to be some class or some teacher you just don't, doesn't connect with you, but there's always like, you know, two out of every three teachers was somebody who, you know, I felt like really made a difference, you know, took some time. And if I asked him some question after class or something, there's always, they're always very interested. So, you know, I have a, a lot of fondness for that public education those years. Um, I remember when I started, there was art class with paints and there was music class and there was all these sort of non STEM classes and, and I remember just sort of feeling a lot of value uh, uh, from those classes. As I went through in my own life, you know, because I'm a sort of a, a, a born 82, uh, you know, uh, the, the funding for a lot of that dried up. And, you know, I think arts fell out sometime when I was in elementary school and, and music also fell by the wayside. Um, and and, and then sort of this relentless focus on arithmetic, you know, certain topics over other topics. And I guess my my question about education is, I mean... How do we decide like what to teach these kids? How do we and and are the things we teach and evaluate and test just like a certain type of thinking? Um, you know, I sometimes feel like you know you and I are professors, and when you're a professor, it, it's taken it's it's uh, it's this on steroids. Like people are like, oh, you know, you, I don't know. Sometimes not to me. Nobody nobody will ever say anything good to me. But somebody will say tell somebody like, oh, that person's really smart. They're really good. I was like, they're really good at one type of thinking, which is like. A- analytical thinking, analytical, this person says this, I'm going to say this, this person says this, I'm going to say this, this is the counter objection to this, this is the, the way around this, this kind of argumentative analytical thinking. It's not the only type of thinking. Um, I don't know, people who are really good at chess, they, they think a little bit differently. I think it, it's not the same as what kind of what the professor thinking. Um, there are people who are very creative and they think in a different way. Um, there are even people in, as a doctor, I think I also see a range of thinking that that's not the professor thinking. The professor thinking, writing papers, getting them through peer review, getting them published, that's a type of thinking. Um, anyway, it's a long thing. But I guess, uh, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, um, do we, are we narrowly like teaching kids 
that the only type of intelligence that matters is one sort, one, one strand of intelligence? Are we depriving them of other ways in which people can be intelligent? Um, and how did this agenda get set? Who decides what's the priority and what to fund? Um, any thoughts on this in this space of like, what do we teach them? Yeah. Yeah, so great question. I mean, again, there's there's an interesting kind of political history here, right? I think it started with um, with Sputnik um, and and this belief that mm. the Soviet Union, you know, had that kind of uh, we've fallen behind and, and our educational system was was to blame. Huh. Um, in 1980s, President uh, President Reagan put together a commission on excellence in education. Uh, this was around the time when we first started getting some of these comparative international exams uh -huh. that showed the United States not doing so well. And so they published this kind of provocative report, Nation at Risk. I mean, they basically said, you know, this is this is a national security disaster. Um, you know, if we're behind, um, this is going to really put our economy at risk, our competitiveness at risk. So I think that's some of the context. Um, and, and what was being measured on those exams was primarily math and language arts. Uh, I do think there's there is some some practical considerations here as well. Right. Uh, so one of the one of the one of the things that people say a lot is you know if you can't read by the end of third grade you're really at a disadvantage because you stop stop from you know learning how to read to reading how to learn you have to have some of those basic skills in order to engage some of the later material so I think that's some of it uh, but the other I think the other but, but big don't worry about that anymore because uh, we invented Twitter to get around the reading requirement for life. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, right. No, go, go on, go on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so the other side of it is um, inequities, right? So the No Child Left Behind, whether you love it or hate it, I think one of the things it really showed us, it, for the first time, required um, you know states that had testing, and many states already had testing by the late 1990s. But instead of just showing the average for a school and the average for a district, you had to disaggregate it by racial group, by SES group. And for the first time, we had you know really powerful data about the size of these inequities. And I think it's it's one thing to say you know for the high achieving middle class kids like they need more art, they need more uh -huh, music. Uh -huh. But for some of these disadvantaged students who are grades behind academically, uh -huh, right? Uh -huh. Like it was like triage. We got to get we got to fix that first. I see. Um, okay. And I think I'm, I think we made some progress, but you know we're still we're still really far behind. So I think it was just a matter of priorities, right? You know, if we have a limited time in a school day and we have kids who are two, three, four grades behind in math I and see. reading, let's focus on that, on those basic skills. So I think I think that, that's kind of the history and I think that's how we got here. Um, but there is a big debate. Um, there's a big debate in this uh, in, the, in this literature um, uh, of, you know, what is it that we measure with test scores? So a lot of um, important work, Raj Chetty's work, especially showing the importance of test scores for predicting later life outcomes. That was based on relatively low stakes exams. Mm -hmm. And so I think a big open question is, as, as we've put a lot more weight on these exams and we've really geared the entire system of helping students do well, right? Is it coming at the expense of other stuff? And so there's a big debate about how well do this you know, performance on tests and growth on tests predict um, educational attainment, college completion. Um, and I think there's also some really important work really in the last couple of years that suggests that these cognitive skills, like how you do on test scores, are important, but there's all these other non-cognitive skills that are even more important. Uh, so, you know, teachers that do a good job of increasing student attendance, students that do a good job of decreasing student student disciplinary behaviors, those effects actually seem to have much bigger impact on predicting like school completion, on predicting college attendance, on predicting involvement in the criminal justice system. And so I do worry that, you know, we focus so much on, on these cognitive skills that are easily measured with standardized test scores that we have kind of perversely uh, discouraged investments in these other areas that are probably just as, if not more important, for predicting the things that we care about, which is long-term, long-term outcomes. 
I see. I mean, that's I, I, very fascinating. Um, I mean, some of the test score being a predictor of long-term outcomes might be a self-fulfilling prophecy because the test is a requirement to advance. I'll just give you one example. Like in medicine, there's this MCAT that people, you know, whatever. They use it a lot to decide who goes to the me- medical school. And then somebody was like, well, you know, I was like, well, I, I, was like, I, I frankly think I, as a, just a, my gut feeling is that it tells me absolutely nothing of value and that I'm going to figure out what I need to know about somebody when I round with them on the wards. Um, and someone was like, well, you know, it is a predictor of whether or not they graduate. And I was looking into it a little bit more and I was like, wait a second. It's predictive whether or not they graduate, but one of the things to, to, like you have to achieve to graduate is pass a very comparable standardized test. So I was like, okay, yeah, of course, somebody who's good at the standardized test is going to be good at it later, and so it's a predictor of graduation because the person not good at it, but is it a predictor of like external things? Um, but I'm sure that you know you guys try to get around that a little bit. Um, I mean, even the demoralizing that comes if somebody keeps getting bad test scores, they might be more likely to drop out just because you keep shaming them. I don't know. Um, Thoughts on that? I mean, is it is it just? Is, but it, it has a predictive effect beyond that. Uh, well, I think that's that's open to debate. I think there's a lot of folks debating it. Certainly, I think some of the research from the 1990s did show that they had predictive predict you know predictive validity. But I think the question is, this was a period when again test scores are relatively low stakes. Mm. So we you know we didn't have an entire right. system designed to increase test scores. And so whether the gains we see now predict the same that I have, because I guess still very much up up to debate. Well, that's well said. Um, it's a fascinating topic. I mean, I guess I I I think our our pot. I mean, I'm I'm very glad we did the podcast we did, and I'm glad I took got to I talked to Alistair and and some other people and and Stefan, um, people who are all very like minded on this issue. I mean, there there is a lot of uncertainty, but there are a few things that I think everyone should have agreed upon, which is that this is a priority, certainly a priority over sporting events and bars and nightclubs and strip joints and restaurants and that's a that's something that I think people in Western Europe readily understood um that's something that I think people here didn't understand I still think that there was the that there is some opposition to this because Trump put a put a thumb on the scale um but I think it proved to be it I mean it's proving to be a very a much more tra- difficult difficult issue to change anyone's mind on and and that's what I've sort of felt the frustration about and now with cases rising it's just more ammunition for them not to change their mind with a vaccine coming, it's another reason for them not to change their mind. And so, um, and with a new president, just another reason not to change their mind. Um, uh, and, and so I think, you know, we had uphill odds then, and now we have even more uphill odds to try to get some progress here. I guess, uh, the, I guess if I were to, and maybe I'll tweet this out later, um, uh, I think teachers should be at the top of the list of getting the vaccine because it will facilitate something that needs to happen urgently for for this society, and and I think the second most important thing will be will be um, to get thoughtful people like you to um, and others to to think about how do we repair um, what might be lost, um, what the damage that's done. How do we get kids who may have dropped out to come back and things like that? And I think we'll have to be very creative, and hopefully the new administration will will be willing to do what it takes to you know, to, 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 to try to get some, to restore these outcomes. Um, but, um, yeah, thank you so much for taking us through this. Um, such an interesting, uh, place, um, in, in, in the world is thinking about education, which is probably one of the few things that everyone, you know, like healthcare and education are like two things people, people agree upon a lot, what the goals are, uh, and yet somehow disagree ferociously on how to get there. Um, I'll let you have the last word. Thanks for doing this, Dr. Kogan. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with you. And I guess if there's one thing I could stress, uh, I could probably be the same thing I stressed last time, which is, you know, we can't wait for schools to reopen to start 
like figuring out how to how to make up from this, some of this lost ground. So if there's like one thing I can emphasize is we got to start now, yeah. right? Even if schools are closed, we got to start now addressing some of this remediation because it's just going to be too late. Um, it's going to be too late if we if we continue waiting. Oh, I lied. I said I have one last word. I think one sure. of the other things that this has taught us, this whole episode has taught us, is that people do not understand thinking about risk. Um, I think, like, you know, Nassim Taleb is actually a very interesting thinker. You don't have to agree with him on everything, but I think he's quite interesting. He's truly an original thinker. And one of the things he was, you know, talked about is fat tail risk. And and if people had thought more about fat tail risk, they might have been a little bit better pre- prepared for COVID, which is a fat tailed uh, probability event. It is it is it is a, a, a rare event, but if it were to happen, it has you know tremendous implications. And and people weren't thinking that way. And then I think people have a tough time thinking about daily risk. Like you drive your kids to school every day, you leave your kids at soccer practice, you let your kids walk a few blocks, you let your kids do a whole bunch of things, you let your kids go to school in flu season. Um, you know, you let your kids do so many things that put them at risk and people are not good at, you know, one-tenth of, you know, one in a thousand, one in 10,000, one in a hundred thousand risks, how to think about that. You know, it, it just becomes, I don't want my kid to die. Well, of course, nobody wants that. And if you didn't want, and if you really want that, you could lock them in a, you know, in a like Rapunzel in the castle and never let her go anywhere. Um, you know, but, but we have to, to have these trade-offs and think through these trade-offs and, you know, all we were trying to do is articulate what I'm still trying to do is articulate the trade-offs and that there are trade-offs. And I think that's something that we, people aren't good at. And this has shown that they're really not good at it. And, 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 and maybe that's another frontier for education is how to make people good at thinking about that. No, I think you're absolutely right. So Cass Sunstein has a great book, I think by about 20 years ago, I think it's called Risk and Reason, where he makes exactly this argument in, in the context of like regulatory policy that uh, uh, as a society, we make all these irrational trade-offs because of these cognitive biases, right? Like when, when a plane crashes, people drive more, which is far worse, right? right Those are the risks. Right, right. And so this has always been a problem. You know, we know like the availability heuristic is a big issue. People, people amplify things that they're really salient. And certainly, like, there's nothing more salient than COVID, right? That's right. what everybody talks about. So those risks are just at the top of people's minds. And so I think changing the conversation and trying to get people back to kind of reality and, and really pushing people to think carefully is really the way to go. Um, I think that's really the only way that you can you can help people, you know, understand the relative magnitudes of these of these various risks. Dr. Kogan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right, I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Carrie Cruz Bueno. Dr. Bueno is a postdoctoral fellow at Brown University and on her way to be faculty in economics. And she is the author of, I guess, many things, but one thing that caught my interest, which was a really uh, wonderful paper out now, working paper, entitled Bricks and Mortar versus Computers and Modems, the Impacts of Enrollment in K-12 Virtual Schools. Dr. Bueno, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being here. I was just talking about how I reached out to you, hopeful that you would do this, and um, I guess my email was was correctly labeled as spam and deleted. <laughs> and if and then if my admin didn't try to reach out to you later, it wouldn't have happened. So I just looked at my calendar one day, and I was like, oh, I'm talking to her. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, so I, I look forward to this. Um, so I guess I guess I would say that you know, we're talking right now, it's Monday, and we, and we just learned some stuff about a possible vaccine coming. So that might change things a little bit. But I think the discussion, and it's still so relevant that um, 
that, you know, we live in a moment right now where so many kids have been switched abruptly from brick and mortar classrooms, being there in person to being virtual. And um, we've explored some of the themes of education on this podcast and how important education is in upward mobility and, and career outcomes. And, and, and I, I've, I've said many times, maybe a bit over the top, but I say that it's like the last tattered ladder left in America for upward mobility. You know, we've done so many things to, to poison and break the ladders of opportunity. Education is one of the last things we have. And so I think I was very concerned with how we've halted schools and how, you know, we've done that because we think there's this theor- theoretical risk of increasing spread. I think some medical data that we've talked, I've talked about suggests that that risk may be overstated. And then the downside to kids and their health and their well-being, I think, is huge. Um, but one of the things that I had heard back from people was, well, how do we know online education isn't as good? Maybe it's as good. Maybe it's better. Um, and you're shaking your head. Um, but, and then, and then somebody pointed me to your paper because you, have really thought about this really long and hard, and you've done a really nice study um, that that tries to get at the causal link between online and in-person. So I wonder if you might, I don't know, maybe first actually tell us a little bit who you are and, and what you do, and then let's talk about your paper. Um, I didn't prepare for that. Um, <laughs> my little spiel, I guess, about who I am. Yeah. It's, I guess that's a really long story. I'll try to condense it as much as possible. So um, my name is Gary Cruz Bueno. I finished my PhD in summer 2019. I am a proud Black Latina. My family originally comes from the Dominican Republic. And I think really going back and forth between the US and Dominican Republic over the summers is where I really started to get interested in economics and these education issues. As we know that developing countries and low-income countries such as the Dominican Republic have even worse education outcomes than here in the United States. So um, after I graduated from undergrad college at Mount Holyoke College, Western Mass, small all-women liberal arts college, I majored in economics because I still wasn't sure if a PhD was for me. Um, I didn't want to be in the ivory tower. I wanted to be with the people having direct impact. Um, so I always had that, that contrast or that pull and tug and pull. And so I did Teach for America. I joined Teach for America. I taught seventh grade math for students with special needs. So mild to moderate um, disabilities. Yeah, and I think they're being there for two years, teaching the students. Hawaii is a very different, diverse population, a lot more um, Asian, um, lower income countries, a lot of countries that I had never heard of, and a lot of Native Hawaiians who are homeless or very low income and have been displaced um, with different U.S. policies. So I think there I really got the energy and I saw being a teacher, how hard it is. It's the hardest job ever. Mm. My heart always goes out to teachers because literally I was working 18 hours a day, any given day, um, between grading or thinking about my students, planning for them, and really trying to make thoughtful lessons that were relevant to the students in Hawaii. So you say, oh, just take a textbook and use it. But the examples in all the textbooks were like, kids in Colorado surfing, like a math example, like, oh, what's the degree 
of this hill. And they're like, we've never seen a surfboard. Mm. <laughs> a snowboard in our life so what i'm getting at there is like also like the cultural um awareness that teachers have to have to teach a diverse population of students so all that to say is that um it wasn't a direct path to my phd in economics um i really i'm really grateful that i had that opportunity to be in the classroom and see a little bit firsthand um, all the issues that school systems um, face in a day-to-day when you're in the trenches with the students and other teachers. Um, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of hard work. Um, after my two years in Teacher America, I really wanted to get back to policy. I kept thinking about all the different ways that econ research, education research, could really have an impact on the greater population of students. And so um, I think that's my background when it comes to education and I didn't know, I didn't know any of this, um, but it's super fascinating. So I guess, you know, even before you were a, a doctoral student, you, you really have spent a lot of time thinking about this issue. Education is deeply important to you. I, I don't think I fully appreciated that. I just read your paper and thought it was wonderful. Oh, so, oh, wonderful. Okay. I mean, I, 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 I think that's really helpful to get a sense of that. And, and having had that hands-on experience, um, that probably does inform your, 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 your economic work as well. And so then you did your, your PhD work, and this is your postdoctoral work. Um, so actually, this work is from my PhD. I see. Part of my dissertation. I see. And, and I mean, you must have been working on this before, I mean, before COVID and before Zoom, right? So like, how did you know that this was going to be perhaps, you know, such a, such an important topic? Did you, you didn't know. I didn't yeah, know I it was going to be, um, there's no way I could have predicted COVID-19. There's no way I would have known so many students would have been displaced today. I, although there has been some evidence that um, scientists and doctors like you have talked about um, something like this coming. Um, I don't think the average American um, thought about these things. But when I started this project as early as I think 2017 officially, or 2016, I started talking with um, the administration at Georgia. And my interest was there are these full-time virtual schools in 18 different states in the United States, including Georgia, which is where I study. And what I saw studying just the charter schools in Georgia with different projects I was working on with my advisor at the time and now co-author Tim Sass, is that these virtual schools looked very different from the other charter schools in Georgia. But um, we would have our meetings, we would talk about it, and we we're like, huh, what, what's going on here? We don't know. We should put a pin in this and come back to it. I see. And so when you're thinking your PhD program, like what can I study, what hasn't been done, not much has been done on full-time virtual schools. And that's um, millions and billions of dollars if we think about the U.S. over the 10-year period have been spent on these schools because these are public charter schools. And so for me, it was understanding, is this a really good investment? Are we getting our return in education? These are the fastest growing types of school choice. Is that true? I didn't know that. Yeah. It is. And so prior to COVID-19. <laughs> when I give my talks, I'm always like, I always like, prior to COVID-19, yes, <laughs> if someone recorded my talks in the most recent, like, month or two, I'd probably say prior to COVID-19, like, a hundred times. So this is all prior to COVID-19. Let's get how, how, What made people even think about doing 
this, I mean, I, I guess I didn't know it was a thing that people were thinking about doing. What, what, yeah, what are the right. advantages? Who chooses this for their kids or how, how does that work? Right. So most of my paper is really trying to understand who these people are, because that's the number one question I was always getting prior to COVID-19 when I was presenting my work. Um, so a lot of parents who are either, I don't have the exact number breakdown in Georgia, but what you hear from families is parents who are dissatisfied with um, the school system, their neighborhood schools, parents who um, some are pushed into these types of schools, um, some parents who um, might be, you know, it could be anything like medical issues or family, or they want a, students to be able to work at their own pace. So one of the biggest promises about full-time virtual schools or just online learning is that students, it's a more individualized learning. The students can really um, go at their own pace, advance, um, go back to lessons, really think about it. And so um, if they do deliver on that promise, then um, we could see actually some some positive. I see. And 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 how do you get at the causal questions? So that's what that's what I wonder if you might unpack for a second. So you want to know whether or not this is better for their educational outcomes and for for the risk of dropping out um how do you how do you get at that um using this georgia experiment yeah and so ideally or maybe not so ideally mm -hmm. you would want some kind of randomization you know um golden standard randomize the families some families all families who want to go to a virtual school some go to a virtual some don't or just take the whole, all students in the United States and randomly put them into virtual schools and put the other into brick and mortar. And my life would have been so much simpler. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> but we know that this doesn't work in policy. Randomization in education is very hard to get behind as um, families do have choice. Um, families should be able to choose um, with, with the knowledge and with the results and with the data behind it. Um, what schools um, they believe are best for their students, for their children. And so um, in the absence of that, virtual schools are not um, oversubscribed, so there's no lottery to them. Um, that's one of the great or promises of virtual schools that there is space for students to join without being oversubscribed. Um, and maybe that'll change post COVID-19, but prior to COVID-19, there has been no oversubscription of these full-time virtual schools. And so what I do is I take advantage of having 10 years worth of data of Georgia. And so any student who attended a public school in Georgia from uh, 2007 to 2016, 2017, I, I see them in my data, obviously very confidential, de-identified, I don't know anyone's information, I can't identify any student. Um, and also when I present these results, it's never at a student level. Um, so I know that's always a big concern for families and non-researchers. Um, the most secure systems at Brown as well as at Georgia State to really protect the identities and information of these students. And so I have their information. And what I do is I first, um, there's a couple different things I do. First, I do what in economics we call individual fixed effects, 
and that's a lot of fancy words for I compare the student to themselves. So I compare when they were at a virtual full-time virtual school to when they were at a brick and mortar school. I see. The positive or the benefits of doing um, this method is that we actually control for any of the non-time varying um, characteristics of a student. So the student does not change the race. The student does not change their family. The student does not change any of those um, innate characteristics that we can think in. That's been debated um, a lot, but it is a method that we use in economics um, to really try to get uh, closer to a causal estimate as possible. And so one of the issues with student fixed effect or individual fixed effect is that there could be a shock that's time varying right before the student switches to this virtual or full-time virtual school. So if there's this time varying shock, um, let's say for example, I like to give is families have a divorce. This has been shown to be a negative impact on students. Um, and so maybe if there's having the family divorce um, or big breakup of the family and the student switches to a virtual school that same year, maybe some of the impact is due to the divorce and not solely on the virtual school. So being able to address that issue is the biggest challenge with using individual fix and back. And so I do find that there's some trend of test scores declining right before they switch. So descriptive evidence that something's going on with the student. Um, and what I do there is I, very typical in the education literature, is I throw out their last school, last school year as a control, and I use two years prior. I see. And what we hope there using two years prior is that there isn't as much of this impact of switching that same year. And what I do find is using um, both in the original individual fix effect as well as later doing this interrupted panel. So throwing out their last year before they switch to a virtual school is that students who attend these virtual schools, the year they attend the virtual school, they do about 0 0.1 to 0 0.4 standard deviations worse than what they were doing at a brick and mortar school. Hmm. So for, for those non-technical stats people, um, that translates to one to two years loss of learning. Oh, it does. Okay. That's one. Oh, I see. 0.1 to 0.4 standard deviations is one to two years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so this is a really big impact, even when we're comparing with other programs. Yes. And, um, education. So a lot of research on charter schools, such as skip schools, high performing. And what Angers and co-authors find is that a 0.1 positive, like attending KIPP schools, Attending KIPP schools leads to a 0 0.1, 0.1 standard deviation positive for ELA. And so what I'm finding is these large impacts in the negative direction. And so um, even if we think half of that is due to selection of something going on with the family, that's still a 0.5 to a 0.2 standard deviation. So these are still very large, statistically significant and impactful um, losses of students face when they and I see, and, and one of your methods by discarding that last bad year is if the um, family and teacher were like, we're, you know, um, th this last year, 
was so bad, we got to do something different, good. right? We got to do something right. different. So you are, you are, you're kind of overcoming that last year. Something bad happened to this kid. That's why we switched him. Um, yeah, that's yeah. not representative. That's not of representative of, of what they were getting out of brick and mortar. And still, you find this huge loss. I mean, I don't know. I guess I would say um, um, one of my concerns would be that it would be natural for a kid who is um you know maybe struggling or 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 maybe just an average kid to slip through a crack when you know the computer doesn't watch you the way a teacher watches you in classroom you know the computer doesn't keep you on task you don't have that camaraderie effect of other peers and um those all might be potential mechanisms for it to explain the empirical finding you're finding yeah and i talk about the different mechanisms in my paper yeah and you kind of think about um, it could actually, before doing the study, it could actually go either way. So I alluded to it, the mechanisms that could lead to this negative impact, like you were saying, was not having a teacher in person. We all, it's well established in the ed econ world that teachers are most important input to increasing student achievement and student later outcomes in the labor market. Um, so not having a teacher in the classroom could be if your peers lead to positive um, interactions. So there are some research that shows that having good peers does lead to an increase in education attainment. Mm -hmm. um, but we can also think of it the other way in the sense like if virtual schools offer this individualized learning where people can move at their at their own pace. Yes. To, also, if students are being bullied for reasons yes. um, of their sexual orientation, their race, um, any reason um, of the numerous isms that we have in the United States, um, we can see that now these students can learn without those um, negative peer effects. Sure, I see. Um, so without more studies or without this study, um, it's not clear where the mechanisms. And, it, and what I say a lot of times when families talk to me, um, it could be both of these things happening. This is a large study with a lot of students in Georgia. Um, that doesn't mean that your individual student, your individual child, didn't benefit from a virtual school. Right, of course, right. So there's um, a lot of caveats. A lot of caveats, but, but, uh, but it's still, I mean, such an important um, thing to know and obviously deeply relevant. Let me ask you a question. Um, I guess maybe it's a, it's a two-part question. One part is... Um, are these differences important for like someone's life? I mean, I guess I would say, I don't know, um, well, some cynical person might say, oh, so what? They don't know these subjects so well, lose a little bit of grade level. Does that mean something for their lives, their livelihoods, their their income, their, their life expectancy, any of those sorts of things? Um, the next question would be, um, you know, something, some people, I mean, COVID-19 has done this for like more people than has ever happened in like the history of the world. I mean, I think it's the single most disruptive event we've ever faced. And so I guess my question is, do you think these effects are going to be enduring? Like if we just did this for eight months and click, click went back or a year and went back, um, can we overcome the diff deficit? So what are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. A couple of different questions. Yeah. Okay. First one, what does it mean? Yeah. For what does it mean? And I think... Um, when you talk to economists that study education, you get this question a lot. Um, but education, as we talked about before, is the stepping stone for labor market outcomes. It's an input, in economists' words, to the outcome or the output of labor market. And so um, the amount of education you have, the quality of your education, 
has already been shown on multiple research projects that has um, serious implications for your income. Um, income, job opportunities, college um, process and college and a lot large literature showing the importance of college attendance and wages. Um, yeah, and there's also been researches showing relating how we don't care about test scores, as some people say, just because they're test scores. Uh, we care about test scores because they're the closest thing that we can project to um, seeing how students will do later. I see. Um, and I think that's an important thing um, for me as a researcher is that this is like an early indicator. It's the best early indicator we have to think about how can we how can we turn how can we turn the wheel. There's so many things in your personal life when you, something happens, you're like, okay, how do I turn this around? And so if we don't have measures telling us, telling the teachers where the students are, they they can't know um, what they need to do, how they need to intervene to hopefully improve the children's education and get them on track. I see. To so one of the other um, measures I look at in my paper is graduation. And so I don't claim causal evidence there. It's very much um, just correlations and showing the relationship between attending a virtual school, full-time virtual school and attending a, and graduating. And so descriptive evidence I find there is that attending a virtual school leads to a decline in the likelihood that you will graduate. Interesting. Now. Now come to the second part of the question, the question of can you overcome a one-year deficit or or is the harm enduring? Um, yeah. So again, descriptive evidence that I have in my paper, I show that students who attend prior to COVID-19, who attend a full-time virtual school and only attend for one year, I track their test scores before they um, switched to a virtual school and after when they're in the virtual school and when they return to the brick and mortar. And what I see in that graph is that we do see a decline in their test scores before switching, a larger decline when they're in the virtual school. So we see a big drop, especially in math. I see. It's doing much worse in math. But this same sample of individuals who choose to only be at a virtual school for one year, also we see them come back when they're in the brick and mortar, back to the average of where they were the brick and mortar. So a lot of people have taken that as hopeful, again, descriptive evidence that um, when students do return back to school, back to brick and mortar, um, it can re be recovered. And I really, you know, teachers are going to be, they're working really hard right now. And I know they're going to continue to work hard once they're back in brick and mortar. Um, so, so I guess you, you do have an out, you do have some optimism from your data set that that, that could be overcome. Yeah. You're somebody who spent a lot of time in thinking about the economics of education. And I guess from what you've told me, it seems clear that, you know, you believe that education is really important. Um, I'm wondering how you think about this. And this may be, I don't know if you have thought about it. It's maybe beyond what you've, what you've studied explicitly, um, which is 
You know, most of the educational programs in this country, the subjects we choose to teach and the way in which we choose to teach them, they all fall from a certain tradition of education. Um, they all, even though we think they're dis diverse subjects, we all kind of, I don't know, use the same tools in the brain, analytical mm. thinking, um, lots of memorization. Um, uh, um, and, and I guess I wonder that there are other things I know when you when somebody calls someone colloquially smart, like this person is smart, sometimes they're the sorts of people who do well on those subjects that we emphasize in school. But sometimes they're smart and you just can, I don't know, it's hard to articulate why you think they're smart, but they are smart. It, it just exudes from them that they're a very sharp person. Um, but they don't always do well in those school subjects. And sometimes they do well in sort of creativity or creative thinking, things things that are very difficult to teach and very difficult to assess. And I guess I wonder, I guess I wonder um, if you think that maybe broadly about education policy, if one of the things we miss in education policy, and maybe this is totally removed from your work, uh, and so feel free to tell me that it's crazy, but maybe like one of the things we miss in educational policy is we miss the fact that different people have strength in, in their brain, I guess, in different ways. And we only kind of test and reward and develop like the bicep muscle and not the tricep muscle, if you know what I mean. Like we're not developing and testing these other ways in which people can be productive members of society, creative, intelligent, charismatic. I don't know. This is, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Is this something that people talk about in your field? Is, is this something that you think about? Or am I totally off base? You're not off base. I think... Um where my mind goes to and where I've studied a little bit and where I hope to continue to do more research in is what we call social emotional skills. And within education, this is a growing field. A lot of people are interested in social emotional skills. And I think social emotional skills capture some of those traits that you were talking about, about um, just creativity, also empathy, um, being able to relate to people, being able growth mindset. So this has taken off and I think it's slightly different from what um, you're saying, but it has very similar characteristics in the sense um, it's hard to teach, it's hard to measure, um, but I'm hopeful and I think a lot of districts are implementing this. They're seeing the need for more holistic um, holistic teaching of students. I think some districts, some schools are ahead of the game when it comes to that. Um, so I really hope to study that more. Um, but there there are measures that um, psychologists use to measure these. Um, I want to see psychoanalysts. I might not be. <laughs> no, no, but you, I, I get your point that exactly. they are, they sort of go beyond these sort of, yeah. Yeah. And so they do measure the school counselors. Um, but I do think you're right in the sense that um, prior, um, definitely prior to the new um, implementations in the education policy, there was a focus on these harder subjects of math, English. Um, to a lesser extent, science and social studies, which I do get to study in my paper. Um, but these are important indicators as well. I think we need to emphasize all of the different aspects because people do have different strengths and not everyone's a CEO, not everyone's a artist. 
And so we have this large spectrum and how do we give students, each of them, an opportunity to shine, I guess is one way to say it. And I do think there is overemphasis in the harder subjects than there is in the other, um, I'm just gonna call them all other. Um, and I think emphasizing a little bit more the other where people can learn to excel and maybe tap into, and even if you are really good at math and sciences, there might be something that even improves your math and science if you're able to tap into the creativity part. Um, so I do think, I mean, I think there's a lot, there's probably a lot more psychology um, research out there that I haven't looked into, but there's definitely an interplay of how it's not one or the other. And I keep coming back to this since COVID-19 about there's many truths out there and they can all be happening at the same time. I think that's in reference to, I don't know if you've been seeing the HBO um, Lovecraft Country. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So I haven't seen the last episode. So I, haven't don't... Seen, I haven't seen the last one either. I'm behind a couple, okay. but yeah. But yeah, just watching the show and just thinking about my life as a black person in the United States. Um, there's so many truths that people believe that are going on in their everyday um, that coexist. And then we can debate um, which ones are equitable, which ones are, um, are best for the society to grow. That's well said. I, um, I mean, I think, I guess just to summarize, I, I guess I'd say, I think, um, you know, I think your paper is super interesting because I think education is very important. And probably as a society, we're making a choice every day in America that we're going to spend, you know, 20% of GDP on healthcare and we're going to spend, I don't know how, whatever pittance we spend on education and whatever pittance we spend on like child, children nutrition and early career opportunities. And every day I'm confronted with, you know, well-intentioned people who complain about the ways in which the system is unjust or broken or leaky pipelines or things of that sort. And I agree with them wholeheartedly. But the point, but, but the thing I always want to direct their attention to is you think it's bad, you know, here among doctors who are assistant professors or whatever. Think about how bad it is in the beginning of the pipeline where you're taking a bunch of kids and thinking about their, their whole life opportunity and the way in which we deprive, I think, children of opportunity by having such an unequal education system, which is antithetical, I think, to the spirit of this country, which was that education would be the great equalizer, I think, at least the great equalizer of opportunity. And so I guess I would say I think the work you do is very important because you are trying to I think capture these causal relationships and and draw attention to where I think resources can be deployed strategically. And although you didn't see it coming, um, you know your paper has great relevance, obviously for for SARS CoV two, and I think it will have great relevance. I think even beyond as as people decide when and how to reopen schools and hybrid models and things like that. Um, and so I appreciate your your interest. In, I look forward to following up with you in in a, in, in a while and see what you work on next. Um, any last thoughts for the audience? Um, I think one thing that now I'm thinking about is school opening and what's come out in newspapers and different education blogs is about how the school opening has been really divided along race lines. Mm -hmm, it is. Yeah. So interesting is what we what we're starting to see in many different places is that whites are more likely to go to an in-person school. Yes. White suburban families. 
and Black, Latino, Indigenous families. Specifically, we have a lot of numbers on Black and Latinos. Unfortunately, one of the problems with the Indigenous population, again, I saw that with Native Hawaiians, is that we don't even track them. We don't even know their numbers. So um, my heart really goes out to my Native American brothers and sisters um, because a lot of times um, we leave them behind, um, even more so. Um, But we do have a lot of numbers on Black and Latino students and what we're finding or what cities or what states are finding is that black and latino students are actually more likely to go to these online settings and i've talked a lot with different friends researchers and read different opposing views um and right now um i think it's hard i think it's hard with COVID 19 and i'm i'm trying to think about this a lot and i'm writing an essay actually about it um how much there's this interplay of COVID-19 impacting Black, Latino, and Indigenous people lives, uh, and people of color in general. And so what we saw was that Black, Latinos, Indigenous are the hardest impacted by COVID-19 in health outcomes, um, largest amount of deaths or in percent wise, I think I heard the other day was three to one for Native Americans um, compared to whites being um, mortality rates. And we also see large impacts of job loss. Black, Latinos, Indigenous, even Asians were had a larger impact of job losses than whites. And so who are these people? These are the parents of the Black and Latino children. And so you can't disconnect this. You can't disconnect the fact that these Black, Latino parents, grandparents, extended family have three to three times more likely seen someone in their family either die being diagnosed um, or almost die um, from COVID-19 and then to think how this has impacted this community and how they're really trying to protect their children and protect themselves so you can imagine if there's someone due to these health disparities Blacks are more likely to have hypertension, other um, negative health outcomes. And what I've seen um, from the data is that having these underlying conditions is even more so of an impact on COVID-19 death outcomes, contracting the disease. And so I guess my point is right now, I'm really thinking about how this is so much interconnected, how much stress um, more, even more so stress that Black, Latinos, people of color are enduring with COVID-19. And the choices, and this are really choices that um, these families are making to protect not only their children, but also themselves and their extended family. Um, all kind of stems from these historic, structural, racial um, inequalities in the U.S. My worry is that some of what's happening now with schools and those disparities you talk will further erode public education because right now anyone in a school district, you know, in every school district, there's always been a range of people, maybe a few rich people send their kids to public school because they believe in it. And, you know, poorer people send their kids to the same public school. It's been a sort of a mixing ground. Um, but I think a lot of people are who have the means will pull their kids out of school and start sending them to private school, private school, private school. Um, and that's going to, because a lot of those are running in person. And then that's going to lead to this vicious cycle where there's going to be less 
um, parents involved in that community school who have money and means and ability to push on issues and advocate for it. There may even be less reimbursement from the state government or federal government for that school. And then that school is going to have less resources the next year. So I worry that this legacy of this big online switch, which is occurring, you know, not for everybody, you know, it's very disproportionate. Um, I worry it's going to have the snowball effect that's harder to overcome because once a kid gets pulled out of school, parents aren't going to want to switch him back just for, you know, yeah. yeah. It's hard to predict. Uh, I don't think anyone has any predictions that they would put money on as of right now, because there's, I really do, COVID-19 is a big shock as we've talked about. And um, I think we're hopeful that that one day we will be able to get it under control um, in the United States, which is what we're talking about. Obviously, I would want it under control in the whole world as well. But in particular in the United States, um, just to combat a little bit your um, worry is that the U.S. is already very segregated um, in the public school system. So the parents who are very wealthy and keep their students in public schools is because they've chosen a neighborhood. And in that neighborhood, which is the neighborhood school, predominantly all the students are, are rich. I see. And there might be a slightly racial, there might be a couple of black Latinos or people of different races, non-white races, um, but they are of the same income. And then looking at how income and race aligns, we see predominantly greater proportions. Whites overrepresent um, rich families, whereas non-whites overrepresent low-income um, families. And so um, I do think that richer families, and they've shown it when the schools have gone to online, they've pulled their student out and they've gone to private schools or um, yeah, they've gone to private schools, Catholic schools, other um, types of private schools. So I definitely agree that families are doing this. They're also doing pods, um, which was, it seems like it's quieted down, but it, it was, um, it's very much the same kind of pulling the student out and being rewarded since they have the resources to give to their children. Um, and I agree that I'm concerned. I'm concerned about uh, the most marginalized students, Black, Latino, Indigenous, students with disabilities, student, ELL learners. And and I really, I really, when, when people ask me what to do, it's I really truly believe in more federal resources by um, more federal resources in places that are impactful, more money. So states and local communities are the biggest portion of school funding. Um, and the equalizer is at the state level that there's been some policies that try to do that, but we still see there's loads of inequality and really a need for federal government to step up and um, put more resources into our children's lives, into our children's education, and lessening the burden on teachers, administrators. Um, they're dealing with a lot of stress, a lot of decisions without even a unifying um, message. So um, I really think a lot about more resources, more targeted resources towards these most marginalized groups. Um, research has shown that tutoring and that's what these families who are doing pods, it's essentially like a tutoring. Um, 
giving all these resources that families with income, with high incomes, give to their students, give to their children. How do we give that to the families who do not, who have been deprived of those same opportunities? That's well said. Dr. Bueno, thanks so much for joining us and talking about your paper. I hope people check it out. Um, it's on your website and it's, uh, it's available online. Yes, thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.